Instead of syncing your phone with iTunes, downloading an MP3 into your mobile device, you can stream episodes of MTR with the Stitcher Smart Radio app. Stitcher allows you to listen to My Take Radio via your 4G, 3G, or Wi-Fi connections. Downloading it is quick and easy. Head over to stitcher.com forward slash my take and you'll even be eligible to win some money. Enter my take all one word in the promo box and you'll be eligible to win $100 courtesy of my take radio and Stitcher. MTR Live starts right now. This coverage is live and uncensored, so if you have any small children present, you may want to have them leave the room. What's going on, guys? My Take Radio episode 172 for Thursday, February 7th, 2013, broadcasting from the soon-to-be blizzard-covered Big Apple. There you go, a little little rattle to get things started. Of course, there was massive chaos over here in New York City as the impending storm Nemo prepares to make landfall later on this evening and probably hit us with some snow, some rain, etc., 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 Obviously, panic in the streets because that's what happens. Everybody after Superstorm Sandy pretty much just panics about everything associated to inclement weather. Not that I can blame them, but when the gas line starts at the gas station and goes down three blocks at 8.30 p.m. on a Thursday, it's a little crazy. It really is. I mean, don't get me wrong. Obviously, you got to prepare, but we're not looking at something as catastrophic as Hurricane Sandy, we're looking at what happens in the winter, i.e. snow. What happens? We've been good thus far. Now, snow's coming. People are panicking, and that's it. Put some gas in your cars, buy some salt, get your shovels ready, and that's it. It doesn't get any crazy. It doesn't get any simpler than that. Unfortunately, it's become a lot crazier than that, like I said in the aftermath of Hurricane Sandy. So, obviously, we got the, we got the show tonight. We're going to do a ton of stuff this evening, and we're going to also be joined by Gilbert Smith from The Ultimate Fighter. He was on the first episode. He was one of the first picks by John Jones for Team Jones. Myself and Ben, who's going to be joining me as well, are going to have a ton of questions to ask Gilbert. i got to give a shout-out to my friend Julius, uh, who helps out on My Take Radio. He actually managed to set this up, so thanks a lot for that, Julius. It's going to be... Uh, it's going to be a great interview, and it's going to be a great night. One of the things I wanted to get out there first and foremost is the shows going into overtime as of late. One of the things that's been happening, obviously, is Blog Talk Radio cuts off the audio at exactly 2 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. 
due to that, many of you lose out on any of the stuff that goes on overtime and usually have to wait until the show gets archived. I got a couple of emails uh, within the last, I'd say, week or so asking about that and if there are ways for listeners to listen live. So I want to get that out of the way first. The show, in addition to being broadcast via Blog Talk Radio, is also simulcast on Mixler. So we have a Mixler tab on our Facebook fan page. We also have a Mixler player on MyTakeRadio.com in the Listen to My Take Radio tab. So there are a couple of ways that you'll be able to listen to the show if you are using Mixler. Last but not least, with Mixler, obviously, you'll get the best audio. You won't be able to join in the chat or call in, but you'll be able to listen to the live show in progress at that time. Just wanted to put that out there because a lot of people, like I said, emailed and they were kind of annoyed with Blog Talk Radio. Unfortunately, that's something that's out of my hands. I'm not in command of how they structure it. They give us a certain window of time and we have to abide by it, unfortunately. But like I said, we have the other option with Mixler, which gives you nice, clear 96K stereo. The only thing that you guys are going to get, you won't be able to do is obviously call in, but you guys will be able to enjoy the live show. So I figured I'd get that out of the way first. As always, our call in number is 347-324-3541. Again, that call in number is 347-324-3541. If you want to call in tonight and ask Gilbert any questions about the Ultimate Fighter, that's the number to use. Just make sure to hit option one and let Slick know that you have a question for the guest. If you want to leave any feedback, hit up our feedback line, 347-815-0687. That's 347-815-0MTR. All right, got a couple of different housekeeping things that need to be addressed and handled before we get into some of the stuff. First up, obviously, for those of you that went to MTR this afternoon you will see that MTR was under maintenance. Now, MTR was under maintenance for a couple of reasons. We made some adjustments to our social media widget, which is there, which we had to previously take down due to some changes in Google's algorithm, which ended up causing issues on the site. Uh, The web developer, uh, Erica, was kind enough to take care of that for us. She is a sweetheart. She did a lot of uh, great stuff behind the scenes to make it nice and clean. Also, there's going to be some expansion. We're going to start doing a little bit more of quote unquote, and this is a tentative title right now, but like geek lifestyle stuff, you know, cool shirts, cool toys, um, cosplay, things like that. Because I share a lot of that with you guys on the fan page and you guys love that stuff. But people that read the site have been asking why that stuff isn't in both places, which is an issue only because Obviously, the social media aspect of MTR is usually handled by myself or Slick or Andrea, and it's very easy for us to pop in, throw something up quickly on Facebook, and pop out and take care of our other stuff. With regards to writing content throughout the day, it's a little bit more difficult, but we're going to try and and work on that and make sure that there's a consistent flow of content on both sides of the spectrum. Obviously, we got social media on lock between Facebook and Twitter, so I'm not worried about that. In the least, I think that the big thing for me is just ensuring that you guys are getting content on both sides. So we're going to try and work on that in the coming weeks. Speaking of that, as usual, and this is something that we also added on the site, My Take Radio is always looking for full-time writers, but we're also accepting guest posts from 
litany of of people. I mean, you guys have seen guest posts on MTR before, but we're embracing that fully now. If you're interested in writing full time for MTR, there is an application on the site you can write for you can write for us, and by filling that out, you can get the ball rolling. If you're interested in just doing a guest post basis type of a deal, we have that as well. There's a guest post application right under that as well. So that opens up both avenues. It can be a one-time thing or an ongoing thing because at the end of the day, we want to get people's content out there. We want to keep our readers and our listeners entertained. And above all else, we, we want to help out the people that are interested in helping us. And if that allows them to build a, pro, a portfolio and build a profile to get their stuff out there, will gladly be the vehicle for it. So if you're interested, click the tab on the site and you can get the ball, the ball rolling with regards to that. I was recently notified that people were able to listen to MTR on Xbox Live. I don't understand how that works because I went on Internet Explorer on Xbox Live and the blog talk radio player did not come out. So I don't know how some people are using Xbox Live to listen to the show. Uh, those people that have reached out and said that it can be done, uh, please forward whatever steps are, are taken to do that because I really would like to test it and use that as another outlet to promote uh, for listening to the show. So if you are listening to the show with your Xbox or PlayStation, let me know what you're using and how you're getting the audio out there because I want to try and work that out as well. We got new episodes of MTR Beyond the Mic and Behind the Mic on the My Take Radio app, and they have also been released publicly. There is a new one that I recorded with Derek Samuels from Ingenious, which is going to be up uh, hopefully tonight. That was supposed to be up earlier this week, but since we were dealing with all the site maintenance, I really didn't want to let it get lost in the shuffle and not get the attention it deserves. So be on the lookout for that. Hopefully right after we wrap tonight's show, I can get in there and edit that stuff as well. All right, so... There's a lot of stuff to talk about this week, and this particular bit of information has really bothered me, and it's a little inside for you guys, and you guys can take it however you choose. I was going to leave it for the gaming segment, but I really want to talk about it because it's really bothered me for the last few days since it was announced. Um, Many of you guys know that we have a a great relationship with Hip Hop Gamer. Hip Hop Gamer's been on the show. I've met Hip Hop Gamer off-air. He's a, he's an amazing individual, a little crazy, but, but in a good way, he's crazy in the, in the sense that he's passionate about what he does. He's passionate about the medium that he covers and he delivers a unique and different type of media for gamers to consume. And with that, like anything else in life, you know, you have your, your supporters and your detractors. So the reason I'm bringing him up is because earlier this week, the ECA announced that he was going to be their ambassador and their spokesperson. And the, of course, this is a, a tremendous accolade for Hip Hop Gamer. Obviously, being the voice of the gaming generation is, is a, a fantastic title to have. But with that, of course, were the countless different uh, detractions from people, uh, whether it was the way he portrays himself, the way he delivers his content, uh, some of the colorful language that he's used in the past, uh, you know, hate speech, um, things of that nature. And I, and I want to, first of all, get into this a little, a little deeper, obviously in the gaming segment, but like I said, this is something that's bothered me because people are out there putting this man 
under the spotlight and acknowledging all his shortcomings and mistakes. But people fail to realize that nobody is perfect in the least. And the fact is that those same gaming journalists, and I say that loosely in some cases, that stand on their on their pedestal and scream to the heavens about all the things that he's doing wrong are the same individuals that aren't hustling like he is to get their brand out there. If you can wake up and write 14 negative tweets about the guy and you're not taking the same amount of energy and creativity to promote your own product, don't be mad that your product sucks. This is how it is. If he's out there hustling, trying to do his thing, don't hate on the guy. If you don't like what he does, don't read it, don't watch it, don't listen. But don't take don't take to the stage, so to speak, to, to spit your, your venom when, and then get mad when people call you out. I saw this all over the web for the last couple of days. Like I said, a lot of a lot of positivity, a lot of great stuff, and then some just real lowbrow, embarrassing commentary from people who quote unquote run sites, are considered journalists, etc., etc., etc. And I'm gonna be completely frank when I say it, and I say it all the time, and you guys laugh. I am not a journalist. I don't break news. I consider myself an opinionated observer. I observe what goes on, and I state my opinion on it. That's how we do it on the site. That's how we do it on air. Occasionally, it's an opinion that comes to us first, but it's still our own opinion. This is one of the reasons why we don't go out of our way to chase down companies to get free games and all this stuff, because we don't want to be indebted to those companies. If something sucks, and if something is trash... I want to be able to say that legitimately and honestly. One of the reasons why we have such a, a diverse staff here at MTR is because they're not afraid to speak their minds, good, bad, or otherwise. Sometimes it's a little more colorful than I would like. Sometimes it's a little more subdued than I would like. But you know what? The thoughts are their own, and people are welcome to agree and disagree with them. Slick and I disagree all the time on stuff. That's one of the great things that that make him and I work so well. Same thing with Ben. Ben comes on. Ben is a guy, he he, he sticks to his guns. He doesn't fall into the, the, the MMA zombie mentality. He doesn't run game and, oh, this guy's awesome just because everybody else is saying that this guy's awesome. The guy says what he says. Blade and Quark, same thing. They go out there, they deliver their content. It's a little crazy, but it's unique to how they deliver their message. Same thing with Andrea and all of our other staff members, and even our guest posts that come in, same thing. I look for a certain type of of individuality that is lacking. Everybody thinks that it's cool to come out and start a little website with WordPress and write about all the stuff you hate about the industry and piss and moan and wah, wah, wah about why isn't my site popular or why don't I get traffic. Here's, here's an idea. The same amount of energy that you spend whining and complaining about why you're not where you should be Spend it improving your brand. You know how many of these individuals complain that I go to their websites and they don't even have an email address to contact them? How are people going to reach out to you if you don't even take the five minutes to put your email address out there? Stop copying and pasting press releases and take the time to create great, unique content. I'm actually working on an article for the IAIB, for those of you that don't know, you know, we're, we're members of that, the International Association of Internet Broadcasters. And I'm writing an article on SEO. And 
you know, SEO is just one of the many facets of what you need to do to ensure that your content is seen and your brand is recognized. And people don't, they don't do that. They don't. And then they complain of, of the situations that they're in. And like I said, I know Hip Hop Gamer. He's a tremendous individual. The way he delivers his content is an asset to the industry because he's one of the few guys that has pulled himself up by the bootstraps and has gotten inside. He's gotten inside the industry. Whether you love him or hate him, the guy is inside. And I guess a lot of people just don't like being outside. Simple as that. Don't complain about being at the, at the cool kids lunch table. Make yourself cool enough to get invited there. That's all I got to say. It's it, it's a travesty that this is what this is the um this is the quote unquote industry I'm a part of, and honestly, and I said this to um, Billy Nichols from Structure Gaming. It's like, look, man, I like being on the outside of the fishbowl looking in. That way, I don't. I'm, we're not indebted to anybody. We don't gotta come out of character and kiss any ass. It's not what we do. It's not. But nonetheless. With, in, in that regard, Hip Hop Gamer is actually coming back to MTR on February 21st. He'll be joining us. Obviously, the Sony announcement is the 20th, so he'll be on air with us on the 21st. And we're going to talk about his work with the ECA. We're going to talk about Hip Hop Gamer Inc. and some of the other projects that he's working on. And we're, we're going to see how, how he responds to what's being said. And, you know, we're, we're going we're gonna to press him with a couple of questions of our own. So I'm really looking forward to that. Just a reminder as well, Jason David Frank, who many of you may know as obviously Tommy the Green Ranger, uh, Red Zeo Ranger, White Ranger, also a mixed martial artist. He will be appearing on MTR on the 28th, schedule permitting as always. All this stuff is subject to change. So with that said, I just want to get into MMA a little bit before Gilbert calls in because we have a lot to discuss so let's get the ball rolling. All right, so a lot happened in the last couple of days, obviously, in the world of mixed martial arts. We had our Jose Aldo, Frankie Edgar super fight at UFC 156, which from start to finish was just a tremendous card. And before I get into any of the fights, all I got to say is the Alistair Overeem loss crushed me. It crushed me for, for multiple reasons. Obviously, as a um, as a pride mark, it really killed me because, you know, the the Reem is a guy who, who I've watched fight a long time, K, uh, you know, K1, pride, Etc. And and you know I'm just I'm just a fan. I'm I'm a fan of the guy. And when I found out he was gonna fight Antonio Bigfoot Silva, I felt that he was gonna he was gonna walk through the guy. And um, needless to say, I was I was disappointed. I was disappointed mostly because he, he when you tell a guy that you're gonna destroy him, it's one of those things where. There's tremendous expectation, tremendous, tremendous expectation. And when you don't deliver, a lot is going to be said. Obviously, a lot of fighters discussed it. A lot of fighters went into detail about it. And um, 
they all had their things to say, and a lot of them weren't nice. But I want to just go through it with Ben before Gilbert comes in and we start the interview, just because I want to get his take on the card, and I want to go through some of the stuff. Ben, what's going on, dude? What's up, man? Not too much. Uh, obviously, we got a we got a busy night this evening, so let's get let's get into this one fifty six business. Obviously, this Alistair Overeem Antonio Silva business is it it killed me, dude. It killed me as as a fan just because you know you talk that epic level of shit and then you just get you just get murder death killed out there. That's one thing that bugged me. But then the other thing is a lot of fighters are like, well, that's what happens when you got to when you got to fight clean. So. I wanted to ask you because you know you're you're a longtime fan. What did you think of the performance, and do you agree with what some of the fighters are saying? Well, I don't think it has anything to do with him fighting clean per se, because he's still winning the first ten or so minutes of the fight. Um, and once again, no one's actually proven he's on steroids. I mean, I wouldn't be shocked if he's juiced up, but we don't know. But regardless. The people who haven't seen Overeem fight before this, before he got into being Overeem, um, he had 11 losses. Seven of those were by KO and, like, brutal, violent KOs. He doesn't have the greatest chin. Never has. And that's basically what happened. He got clipped by a 280-pound man. Like, that's going to... It doesn't matter who it is that gets punched in the face. We've seen Cain Velasquez get knocked out. We've seen Junior Santos get beat around the ring five rounds. Like, heavyweights are going to do heavyweight things and get hit by other heavyweights and get hurt. I don't think it has anything to do with him not being on steroids because he was winning. Like, it wasn't like he was losing the entire fight. He was whooping his ass for 10 minutes. So, I don't know. Uh, it has nothing to do with steroids for me. Well, you know, guys like, like Mirko, Boss, a couple of guys that came out, a lot, a lot of different fighters have come out. and You know, some of them, some of them aren't saying the most... Um, pleasant things about about his performance others are are saying that it's you know boss rootin said it best exactly what you said tremendous athlete but guy has a glass jaw you know that's just that's just how it is and it's it's not a, it's not an insult to the guy it's like look your job as a fighter is to go out there give and take and in this particular instance like you said 280 pi- uh, 280 pound guy hits you there's there's no there's no turning back either way either you eat it and you got the chin for it or you don't. Yeah, I mean that's the whole thing. He's an amazing offensive fighter, but you hit him in the face. Overeem's probably either going to get knocked out or might quit. That's he's always been like that. Like this whole thing, none of this surprised me. Like I mean, I thought he was going to win the fight because he was dominating, but it didn't surprise me when he got knocked out. Like like when we talked about it on on air. Like it wouldn't, like I said, it didn't wouldn't shock me if he lost. I'm just not expecting it to. Right. Heavyweight MMA. There's only two heavyweights in the world that I don't think would lose or are going to be losing except to each other: Cable Adams and Junior Santos. Everybody else is a step below them. Well, the thing about that too is the fact that you you take a guy like like Overeem, and like I said, he I felt that it wasn't that he was dismissive of Silva. But I just felt that he didn't really take into consideration that this is a guy that beat Fedor. And regardless of what people say about Fedor's record, Fedor's legacy, Fedor's career, Fedor's Fedor. You know, this is a guy that, that, that whooped a lot of ass. Regardless, you know, yeah. how, however you people view his record, Fedor's Fedor. When you're, when you're 
when you're considering that the guy was fighting at that time what was considered the, the god of heavyweights and took it to him with, with zero issue, that's you know that that's a problem. Same thing with um, Fabrizio Verdum. You look at, Fabri- uh, at Fabrizio Verdum, nobody gave him the respect that he deserved until he took it to Fedor. Now everybody's like, oh, well, you know, Verdum is awesome now. You know, everybody everybody's a big Verdum mark now because of it. Even though the guy had the ability from the uh, from the onset, basically, I mean, and people also realize that by the time they were fighting Fedor, that wasn't part of Fedor. That was Fedor under the end of his career. That's the end of his career. I mean, here, I mean, people need to realize. I mean, if somebody so good is a good heavyweight, he gets ripped up out of his heavyweight. That's just gonna happen. He gets an asshole for that fight. So people are. Hey Ben, you're you're uh you're breaking up a bit. Hold on a second. Huh? Let me try and bring him back on. All right, let's try that again. Go ahead. Yeah, I can hear you. Just had uh you were starting to get some some garbling. Oh yeah, like um yeah um basically yeah people people. I hope people don't really give up the cut shot after what Kane did to them last time they fought. There's nothing in the pool no blood. Well, you know, that's that's something that's that's that everybody's talking about too. It's like uh, Bigfoot Silva made a case beating a guy who was, for all intents and purposes, uh, destined to get the next title shot. And and he throws a big monkey wrench in the picture. But what you said also holds a lot of weight in the fact that last time he fought Cain Velasquez, it was, you know, it, it was criminal the way that went down. But you also got to consider that Bigfoot Silva is a guy that's learning from his mistakes as he goes. Like, initially, I always felt Bigfoot Silva felt that he had the advantage strictly because of his size. And he wasn't learning to apply that mass and that moveset to his, to his complete game. Like, that's a guy that said, I'm huge, I can just, you know lay on you and, and pound you out and I'll get a victory. Now he's realizing that there's more to it. He's becoming a more complete mixed martial artist, in my opinion. All that may be true. You know, if I don't be different, he's going to take it down, get involved. Like, I don't, he's improved. But he's, Kane is the only person in the heavyweights that can beat Kane and Jim Middleton. But I don't see any other thing beating him. I don't see anybody else beating him. Well, let's let's exclude let's exclude JDS for a second. If if you if you if you were the booker, and obviously you already had your JDS Kane fight, what fight would you book next for heavyweights? Um, between what, just Kane and JDS or uh, title fight? Just anybody. Title fight. For a title fight, I'd give it from Redoom. I'd, I'd do uh, Kane versus Redoom. There you go. I agree. Kane versus Verdun well, probably would be the Barnett, next. But Josh Barnett decided not to come to the UFC. So. Well, it, it, you know, it, it, that that actually in itself was very interesting because, you know, everybody wanted Barnett in there. Barnett's a, a, a great talker. He's a guy that's good to put in front of the camera. And he rejected the deal. Now, obviously, we they, they haven't exactly given up what outlets... You know what? What factors contributed to that? Obviously, no outlets have shed that information. Shared that information, excuse me. But the fact is that were you shocked to hear that Barnett 
pretty much told the UFC, hell no? No, just because Barnett is that type of dude that he's going to... I don't think that's the smartest thing to do just because what's he going to go do now? Fight Bellator? Um, fight, like, one-off fights in Japan? Like, that wasn't the smartest thing to do. But it doesn't shock me at all that he decided that he didn't want to fight the UFC. It didn't shock me in the slightest, but I just don't think that was the smartest thing to do at all. I honestly, I honestly felt that if you rejected a UFC deal at this point, it just raised a question to me, like, yo, what were you making initially? See, the thing, the thing with that is, though, a lot of these dudes is coming over with the, with their, with their strike force deals. Like, if you, if you saw the money that, say, Alistair Overeem just got, he got a ridiculous sum of money. Yep, that's a strike force deal. Like, a lot of these dudes are still on strike force deals because they were still signed with Lufa. So, I'm interested to see. And I guess my next deal was up. So Overeem, I, don't know, I don't know what they're offering. So. Overeem walked out on the losing end with $285,000. Yep. Which is insane. But you know what? No slouch either. Rashad Evans walked away with 300000 I mean, that's an ex-champ, and he's done all that. Like, that doesn't shock me at all. But that guy, when I saw Overeem, I was like, damn. It's a whole lot of money for a dude that really, in his winning streak, hasn't really bought anyone. <laughs> to be perfectly honest, but hey, I mean, I'm not gonna hate. <laughs> no, I, I, there, there's no, there's no hate on that in the least. But it was just crazy that that was the kind of money that was that was given out that night. I did want to also discuss, um, you know, John Fitch and Damian Maya because John, I thought John Fitch. He, he was going to come in there with a fresh game plan and, and try and make a new statement for himself at 170. What'd you think of that fight? Yeah, you're not really game on John Fitch. Um, it wasn't, unless you're into watching it, it wasn't the greatest, most exciting thing to watch. But I enjoyed it just because he got back control almost instantaneously in the first round and kept it the entire first round and kept it almost the entire second round and then kept it the entire third round. I've never seen John Fitch dominate positionally that way. Um, it's crazy. Um, you're getting garbled. You're starting to get garbled again. Move, move someplace where your reception is good. <laughs> yeah. No, I hear you, but it's just it it's just a little underwater sounding. All right. Still garbled. There you go. Yeah. I don't know what it's doing. But uh, yeah, I don't know if Jimmy Miles gonna be able to do that to everyone. It was but that was that was incredible. Yeah, he was he was incredibly aggressive in that fight, and and the crazy thing was he Damian Maya is a guy that he comes in there, uh, tremendous ground game always, ex- extremely extremely dangerous on the ground. But it almost felt, and some people said that John Fitch got John Fitched in this fight. I can see that he's done that right. I I almost I almost felt like you know Damian Maya knew that since he had the superior ground game that he was going to utilize that I think that was the strategy all along just to wear him down and, and you know the, the the decision was unanimous so it wasn't even like like anybody showed Fitch a little love they were like nope. <laughs> Personally, I thought the first round was 10-8. I mean, even, 
even though he wasn't like uh, close to like happening or anything, I think if you dominate someone that way position, I guess that was ten eight because John Fisher really didn't do anything but defend the entire round. So I, I thought the first round was ten eight. No, I, I, you know, it was it was funny because in in that fight, I really, like I said, I don't have I don't have any any hate for John Fitch. It's not it's not on that Ben Askren level of disdain. I th- I think in John Fitch's case, John Fitch know it, that 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 grinding fighting style is is what he's known for. Like it's not like he's coasting; he's just grinding the pace to a complete standstill, which is fine. I understand that. And that's the psychology of his fighting style versus, you know, what, what, what they what, what some people use with Ben Askren, which is, you know, the wet blanket where he just gets on you and, you know, maybe some elbows here and there and, and some changing of uh, of position to show that he has a, a great top game. But it's not it's not on the level that Fitch is where Fitch just slows the pace of a fight to a complete standstill. And I was shocked to see Maya do that because Maya has, a, you know, he has a little pep in his step and he usually has fast transitions and, and he's. And he's fast in there. He gets the submission quick, and he just leaves. So I was shocked that he really just grinded it out. Yeah, um, yeah. I was surprised he didn't get the submission. Um, when John Fitch has not been submitted since I believe Mike Thompson was the first fight, like Jay Yeah. When John Fitch is incredibly hard to submit, and that time didn't do that. But what he did do was consistently just just outrun the hell out of him. Like it was, it was really watch. No, it was one of the one of the things that got me too was the fact that in Maya's case, you know, Maya was a was a contender, you know, he was a championship contender. So it's not it's not like I didn't expect him to have a bad performance. Like I said, I just didn't expect John Fitch to get John Fitched. That was it. Yeah, me neither. I mean, I, I thought Maya could win. I didn't think it would be. It, I don't think it would look like that. Speaking speaking of another uh, very very interesting performance, uh, Rashad Evans and, and Nogueira. I was not not shocked just because of the of the amount of time he was out of the cage, but I was just just thrown aback by the fact that Nogueira was really really trying to set the pace in round two, you know, land that that opening left and then the right, you know, Evan showing some some nice some nice offense, you know, a little little inside leg kick, but Nogueira just continuously moved forward in that fight. I have no idea what. Rashad Evans' game line was that fight. That was insane to watch. It, it, it seemed like he just had no intention of doing anything. Like I, not to say that Nogueira is not a good fighter, but Rashad Evans is a better fighter. And I, I don't know what the game plan was. I don't know what they were supposed to be coming in to do. I don't know, but he just seemed content to not do anything for a long stretch of the time. Just, just play that little pity pack game and not, you know, um, do anything. It, it was, it was insane. But, um, yeah, um, Nogueira did a good job with the boxing. He stopped most of the takedowns. Uh, he, he looked pretty good for the most part, though. Well, you know, one of the one of the things that was crazy also was the fact that the boxing was also brought up multiple times, especially leading up to this fight, with regards to. You know, Nogueira's uh, superior boxing versus Rashad. And I just felt that in Rashad's case, this was a fight. Not to say that this wasn't the fight he should have had, but I just felt that this was a fight that really didn't cater to his strengths. He just came in, 
And and, and it, it almost felt like it was more boxing than anything. And, and Noguera was the one that was switching it up. Yeah, I, I don't know. Rashad Evans should have been able to take Noguera down. I mean, I know you don't want to play around in Noguera's guard for long stretches of the time, but you should have been able to at least take him down. Rashad Evans is a far better wrestler than he showed. And it was, I, don't, I don't even... Like I said, I have no idea what the game plan was supposed to be, and he, I, I don't know. It was, it was hard to understand. Like, I was watching, and I was just confused. Like, what is he supposed to be trying to do? I don't know. Uh, but it was a good win for Gary. It might have been his biggest win in his career uh, for a little nog. And, uh, yeah, I mean, good good win for Gary. Can't take anything away from Gary. Well, you know what was the funny thing, and this was what we had talked about last week, you know, there was talk about, oh, Rashad's going to win. He's going to drop down, fight Anderson Silva. And, yeah, no. <laughs> Not happening. Yeah, if that was the plan, it's gone now. Yeah, now, of course, title fight. But the title fight is something that I want to discuss a little bit in detail. And I just want to kind of backtrack a bit and talk about these Strike Force guys that just came in there and ran game on this card. Yeah. You know, Isaac Valley yeah. Flag, Bobby Green, uh, T. Wood. T. Wood just, you know, separated Jay Haram from his consciousness. Yeah, that's how it was. That was insane. He just ran up on just a bunch of him. He let him flush him. And he dribbled Jay Haram out from that a couple times. And that was vicious. Bobby Green fight was really good, too. Um, because. He was crazy, first of all. King Wizzle, the referee, uh, yeah, I don't think she should be referring to Tyson anymore. Because <laughs> there was a couple fights in this, 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 on this, that is off a really long editing. There was a couple fights that she refereed this card that she did a terrible job with Francisco Rivera, Edwin Figueroa fight, where she basically let Edwin Figueroa get his brains beat out. And instead, probably bringing up mid punch, like, I don't understand. No, I um one of the things that got me with this fight with with all these strike force guys, I think they all just came into the UFC with a serious chip on their shoulder because it's like they were always looked at and it's a, it's a terrible analogy, but it, they were always looked at as second-class citizens. You know, it was always like, oh, yeah, the Strike Force guys, yeah, they're good. They're all right. You know, but the elite guys fight in the UFC. It all, it all, and, and I'm sure it bothered a lot of these guys that that was the, the association they had with the promotion. And honestly, I think Strike Force had a tremendous talent pool before the UFC came in there and pretty much pillaged their roster. Honestly, they had... Probably some of the some of the most dangerous guys that could go into the UFC and do da- major damage. I mean, not even talking about you know the Robbie Lawlers, the El Ninos, those guys, but just they they had a talent pool of great young up and coming guys that are that are just as dangerous. Yeah, they're, 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 not everybody coming out this, but the, the they're doing a really good job. I mean, Bobby Green, Spider-Man, he's got a guy's flag. I think he's going to be able to make some noise. And Tyron Woodley, um, he, if he continues to be this aggressive, he can make a whole lot of noise without a little champion or anything, but he will be able to 
um, make a lot of noise uh, with that distraction with him. I was I was just so impressed because obviously you know Jay Haran Jay Haran's a veteran and um, you know he um, he he's a guy that I expected to um, you know go in there kind of push the pace a little bit but um, I w- I was just shocked that it ended so so viciously you know yeah I mean he didn't really have time to do this. He just had to hit it. It was that was about it. I mean, he, he didn't have time to set up anything at all. It was it was it was good. But I I will say this in, in T Woods case he's he came in you know ten and one he got he got that little one loss but I think he's a guy that's gonna come in there and really shake up the the one seventy division because there's a lot of there's a lot of really crazy matchups in there you know T Wood. I'd like to see a T Wood and Josh Koscheck fight, honestly. I think it'll be a good fight. Um I actually think uh maybe like a Tyron Woodley Damian Mai fight or a Tyron Woodley Roy McDonald fight. Something like that will be a good fight too. Yeah, I think I think in that case, I-, I honestly think that he's a guy that he can go in there and probably get a title shot, and if not even get a title shot at least get top three easily because that division, while it's stacked, the cream rises to the top very, very quickly. Yeah. Like, I mean, I, I would throw them in there with one of one of these dudes that are really high up already. Um, I don't know. I think it'd take Elleberger time with the fight a little good too. I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of good fights that, that um, Tyler really can get. And he, he can, he can be fast tracked to the title shot. Um, if he continues to show this kind of aggression, yeah, I think I think he can be he can be on one of those guys that'll get a uh, a shot immediately. And the best part is he's a marketable guy. Yeah. I mean, which which is know. always good. Yeah, definitely. Especially I mean, in any division like that, that that's who they're gonna put as a marketable dude. They don't you can just be a good fighter, it'll eventually get you a shot, but if you're marketable that that, that helps. No, I think that's one of the things that um really really sets the tone for me i think with with a lot of these strike force guys they're going to come in they're going to really try and make a statement and get title shots as quick as possible yeah i, I wouldn't be surprised if the ufc does something like that just just fast tracks at least the dudes that were really high up just just so they can do like oh this guy was a former strike force champion like just, just so they can say that well where does uh where does a nate marquardt fall into that equation I mean, I think he, if he wins, like, I don't know, two or three fights, I think they'll put him in a, in a title shot. Like, I don't think he's far away from the title fight. I mean, they haven't announced any fights he's having yet, but I, I, don't, I really don't think he's he's far, far out from a title shot. Like, I don't think they're giving him, like, a prelim fight. Like, I think they'll they'll fast-track him. If he wins impressively, they'll fast-track him up to a title shot, too. Makes sense to me. I'm trying to walk Gilbert through... Um our prompting system. I think he, he may be in queue, which if he is, I will, uh, I think he is on hold. Ben, let me put you on hold and, and bring Gilbert on. And then just, um, let me know when you're ready to chime in and I'll bring you back in. All right. All right. Thanks. Gilbert, is that you? (laughs) Yeah, man, it's me. Hey man, how's it going? I'm doing good, brother. How you doing? 
Yeah, you ended up calling myself, and I'm like, I'm like, damn, I'm on air. Hold on a second. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I was totally confused on how to do it, so I apologize. I kind of screwed it up a little bit. That's all right. It's not. It's not a problem. Uh, first up, obviously, thank you for taking time out of your schedule to call in and uh, talk to us tonight. Yeah, man. I, I just finished class, so trying to get into my draft line. So, uh, all right. Well, obviously, first up, I you know, for those not familiar, obviously, you are on this season's Ultimate Fighter cast on Team Jones, and the first thing I got to ask is, how did it feel? Just you know, you got you got the UFC light heavyweight champion picking you first. Yeah, but still, you were you know, it wasn't like you were picked fifth, you know. Well, you you came in with a lot of, a lot of fanfare. Just a, there was there were a lot of eyes on you, especially with that fight to get into the house. You had a, a really really great performance. Uh, awesome head head and um arm choke that secured your your way into the house. And one of the things that got me was that everybody was first thing. Oh, you know the guy's really big. He's gonna gas out. But you you held out really well in that fight. You weathered the the initial storm, and you 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 got a nice tight arm triangle choke in to get into the house. I just wanted to tell you that wherever you're standing, you got to just shift a little bit because you're getting a little, a little muffled. Okay. okay. Could be, um, could be a little uh, interference over there. Can you hear me better? Uh, a little clearer. I think, I think we're good. Okay. Yeah. So, um, so I was saying that uh, the first fight was really good. It, it, it kind of went according to plan because I didn't want to get injuries or. Well, you know, I was after seeing that and then seeing you get picked for the first fight. It, it was it was it was it was crazy just in in the sense that you got picked, you came out, you were ready to rock and roll, and you know it's it's unfortunate that the outcome went the way it went, but like like anything else, it, the the game changes at the at a spur of the moment. Did you at you know after after that happened, did you just sit back and reassess to to figure out where it went wrong, or was it just a question where you were like, damn, you know, I just got caught out there? 
you know, I, I just think about that part, you know. Uh, so I, I just think that part, you know, uh, Luke did a good job and Simon at me. Um, and I think a couple of things went wrong. For one, I didn't say that shot. Uh, I didn't throw punches or I didn't look at the shot. I just shot from across the table and pretty stupid. Two, you know, I should have been a hand guard. I was going to be more because I thought I was when we actually uh, start striking with each other. And, um, you know, the thing was, you know, he wasn't beating me up. And, and I, I kind of thought that the fight could have went either way. I was kind of winning, kind of winning. So it was a fight could have went either way. So I should have kept it on his feet. Because I was having problems taking him down and keeping him down. He's so long and lanky. And what people don't realize is that I may look big, but he was actually the big man. And as he cut from 207, I was cutting for like 194. Wow. So, so the whole of that, yeah, so him being 6'6", six, 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 and being relatively pound for pound a bigger guy, it made it for a very difficult fight for me to take him down and hold him down. I was burning a lot of energy, wasting uh, on a bad strategy. Well, you know, it, like, the the funny thing is that when you when you looked at it, when I looked at that, and just the, the way it went down, I said, I said, damn, that wasn't even like, he he hung himself out there to get caught. It was just something that was su- such a spur of the moment type of a deal that I said to myself, mm-hmm. he'll bounce back, you know, and especially I've heard, you know, Dana White say great things about this entire cast. So I know you're going to get the opportunity to bounce back. But com- coming into this, how did you feel that coming into the Ultimate Fighter was going to be the pretty much the launching pad to go into the UFC? Because a lot of guys, they come in, they don't want to deal with the reality show vibe, and they just want to come in and fight. You know, I've, I've, I I did my homework. You know, I saw all, all the YouTube videos you put out, the work you did trying to, you know, reach out to the community with SureDog. You've been very busy in embracing the the MMA fan base to get yourself out there. Were you were you doing that not only obviously to get your name out there, but just because you felt that it would give you an edge coming into you know a reality show? Well, I, I tell you, um, uh, before the show, we couldn't really talk about it, so so it wasn't like I was trying to reach out to people. But, but I tell you, the show to me was the best thing that could have happened. Listen, here's the truth, okay? I don't have no dreams of grandeur that I'm going to be the next light heavyweight, middleweight, and, and welterweight champion at the same time. I'm, I'm about to be 32 years old. You know, a lot of guys on the show have way more fights than what I have. So to me, this show was like, my maybe my only opportunity to make it big, you know. So I really wanted to go out there and and show the best. It was a lot of pressure on me, but uh, it was the best opportunity possible. And thank God that Dana saw the talent on the show and he's bringing everybody back. So I'm gonna get a second opportunity to uh, to really showcase my talent and, and see if I could progress to the next level. But um, I love talking to the fans. I love reaching out to the fans. You know, I many people contact me and say like, you know, some of the stuff I said on the show inspired them. You know, the whole the whole speech I gave about what my wife said to me about not saying your dream or my other statement that I made about fighting with a free heart, you know, making people the worst case scenario. People have emailed me constantly almost every day about those those themes, saying that how that motivates them to push themselves to the next level. And, and that's what I want. Listen, I'm a father. I'm a husband. I got a lot of things going on in my life. Fighting is awesome, but fighting is not to be all in and all of Jamal. And I want to be big. No, I, re- I, you know, I respect that because a lot of guys they come in and they create 
what I like to call, you know, the reality show persona. They try to make themselves a character to get them to to use that as a as a launch pad to be, you know, a household name. But you came in there. You were yourself. You were genuine. You told your story. It, it made people interested in you as an individual and not just you as a character, which is what what speaks mm-hmm. volumes. You know, it was it was crazy that, you know, Ju- you know, Julius said to me, he's like, hey, man, you know, you got to you got to have him on. He's. He's a cool dude, and and you know, I started doing my homework, and I'm like, yeah, man, he's he's not a guy that's trying to come in there and get 15 minutes of fame. He's trying to use it and make something good of it, which is, you know, it, I gotta give yeah, you, I, I gotta give you kudos for that. Well, I, I tell you, well, first and foremost, I appreciate that. But uh, second of all, you could have come into the cast and try to be a character. You, I mean, you have some strong cultures on the show, and it's for me to try to make my way through the show by being. The idiot is totally stupid. Uh, don't get me wrong, we did have problems on the show that we had fun and we joked around, but it was pretty serious. You never see a bunch of roots on the screen and get drunk and act like an idiot. Everybody told us the first show, and we were very careful with the competition. And you can see by some of the conversations we had and some of the, you know, just like, people took it very, very serious. And, and after that, I thought. I think that. That that's one of the things that kind of has helped uh, this particular season be embraced a little bit more by the fans. You know, I've been watching the Ultimate Fighter since the very, very first season. Um, I've been an MMA fan well before that, and every season progressed into it being about the fighters. Then it started becoming more about the coaches and less about the fighters. Now there's a there's a happy medium, and it's funny because I expected Chael to come in there and be Chael, you know, and that's not to say that it's not going to happen. But I just feel that there's more there's more mentoring involved. There's more, hey, this is business. And I think with with, mm-hmm. with the involvement of a, of a guy like John Jones, he's he's showing you, hey, this is the business side of things. You know, as the champion, you got to make sure that there's a business here. And Chael is is honestly showing that there's there's an, a showmanship that's involved also in promoting yourself. Yeah, you guys are getting a full well, course education. You, uh, yeah, I tell you, uh, you know. I learned a lot from both sides, you know. Uh, John Jones, this show, you know, like you have to be smart in a business way, you know, and, and not make dumb, dumb decisions. I mean, as, as John explained why, why uh, he turned on the final channel, you know, he, he kind of explained that this is his livelihood, and he can't put things out of whim, you know, just because it sounds good. And Channel will tell you, he will be trying to expect you. This is not a fight game. This is a fight business. You want me to take a fight. We're going to step into the cage and touch each other in the face. It's not that difficult. So, so to the whole thing that you can come out and hurt yourself. I mean, you guys open that so much knowledge and, and education. It was an honor to be in the comments. No, I, th- I think that this is... This is going to be great for you guys. And, and like I said, the, the crazy part was after last season where pretty much all those guys got cut, it's it's amazing mm-hmm. that they – and in a way, I felt that it also humbled a lot of people coming in because a lot of these guys, they coasted in and they said, hey, you know, I'll get a fight on on the undercard for the final. Or, or you know, maybe he'll yeah. give me a, 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 little, a little, you know, 50 grand deal. This isn't the case. Guys mm-hmm. got cut. You guys are going to get the other opportunity, and and you guys are going to get the chance to make a case for yourselves to prove that you belong there. Yeah, man. It's uh, I mean, it was funny because uh, the the last day of the taping, you know, you know, it took us out, you know, and uh, we all we all had dinner and we all sat down and talked, 
And I remember I asked her, I said, what are the chances of having everybody come back for the finale? And he said, it's going to happen. He, he, he kind of explained the whole problem with Joe Silver, saying that it's impossible, the number doesn't add up. He said, Joe Silver's pretty pissed off about it. But he was like, I'm going to have everybody back. He said, from the guy that lost and went out on his show, I just kind of referred to me, or to the guy that won it, you know, it doesn't matter. Everybody came, came to fight. We was all serious, and we all deserve a second chance. And by him saying that, he said, he said it that night, which was, like, you know, off cameras, no cameras, everything was done. All the shooting was done. The show was done. And he just told us that. So I come on, I'm thinking, like, you know, we, this is an opportunity for me to, to get into uh, the fight again, whatever case can be. And, but you don't ever really know if he's going to keep his word. I mean, right. I, I know, I mean, I don't know data like that. But Dana to go out into the media and blast it and say, everybody, no matter who made it in the final, no matter who got the wild card, no matter who lost the first fight, everybody's coming back. And he told the media that? Man, it just, it just lights a fire under everybody, all 14 fighters. We're ready to go. We're going to put on an awesome show. Well, you know, I, I with that with that in mind, coming back now after the show and, and catching up with your family, did it, and, and, and everybody's different, but... Did it help you feel closer to your family, just being separated and, and locked up from them for so long, and then you come back, and it's just like, it's like getting close with them all over again? Mm-hmm. Well, well I tell you, uh, I'm very different from everybody in the show. Uh, one, I'm probably, actually, I am the only person on the show that was literally married with kids. I was, uh, it was a couple guys that was married, there was a couple guys that had kids, but I was the only guy that was, I know, yeah, I'm, I was the only guy officially married with kids, um, and 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 also I was also the only guy that that's been in the military and I've been deployed. I've been separated from my family for a long period of time, way more than seven weeks, and been in war zones and being bombed on and all that good stuff. So being separated wasn't the biggest issue, and and uh, don't get me wrong, I was glad to be home with my wife and kids. Uh, to me, the biggest problem was like I don't want to disappoint them. Of course. I didn't want to come back home and, and look my son in, you know, in his eyes and say, Daddy, did you do I don't care if I win or, win or lose. I mean, I do care if I, if I win or lose. But as long as I win or lose, knowing that I gave it my all. That's the that's only way I'm to do it. That's what I'm more worried about. No, I respect that. You, you're you saying it. You know, you want to go out there and you want to go out on your shield. You know, you want to go out there as, as yeah. a warrior. That way, when you look back on yeah. it, there's no second guesses. That's why that's why it makes me so mad when I watch the episode and hear John John Jones say, "Well, you know, I don't think cardio should ever be an issue while you lose a fight." Like, you know, I'm not trying to be disrespectful to John Jones, you know, the, the light heavyweight champ, but I have to say that was not the best thing he could have said. And the reason why is because I never quit. How many times did Luke pick me down? If I was and wanted to quit. I will pull on and try to hold on to him. He'll take me down, and and what am I doing? I'm getting back up. I never quit. Maybe I didn't have the right strategy. I made some mistakes. I should have strike a little bit more. There's a, there's a lot of things I could have done as far as tactics, but as far as me quitting or cardio gassing, I never stopped. And I was, a, and I was the one that was pushing. It's a lot easier to defend takedowns than it is to go for takedowns. You expend more energy going for takedowns than just defending it. So yeah. I'm the one that's pushing the issue, pushing the fight in my realm, which is wrestling, grappling, whatever. And so for him to say that, 
didn't give me no props. They didn't say, well, you know, Jamal kind of, you know, he got caught. You know, he never quit. You know, he kept going. He's like, oh, I don't think Carter Chandler would be an issue. Which is, you know, I don't agree with it. I yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure when you looked at it afterwards, you're like, "Man, come on!" And I and I, and I can understand that frustration because there's there's it's it's very easy to sit outside the cage and 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 even even sit at home and play armchair armchair you know armchair booker so to speak, sitting there saying, "Oh yeah, you know, if I would have been in there, I would have done it like this." But there's a it, there's a different mindset when that door closes and you flip on that switch. There's no, there's no, there's no, there's no game. There's a game plan at that point, but at the end of the day, that game plan kind of takes a back seat when the when the switch gets flipped, so to speak. Well, I, I tell you, like, if, if, if you look at the fact that uh, you know, it, it was hard for me to watch because even after I lost, I, I, I looked into my teammates' eyes, you know, and like everybody was like, "Come on, good job, get your back." And they looked at me, and I was actually like, tell you. See that's not that's not the move because it's it, it the problem with with the guy that has to go out there first is that that's the guy that when when it all comes down to it there's eyes on him not only from the opposing team but just from his own team because they're like damn am I going to have to fight my own teammate and for everybody to kind of just throw their hands up after that performance you know it's it's a little messed up but yeah. it, it, you know they well, 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 you know, I mean, it came down to the fact that they thought I lost control, you know, uh, I'm a team for the team, you know, I hit control of the team finance so, so they could pick, you know, how to best myself. You know, in my, in, in, in my personal opinion, I like the way they did it in how it handled the situation. They were like, I, I don't love or whatever, it doesn't really matter. They, they didn't really care. And I was saying, like, at the end of the day, you know, as as Bubba and Josh and some of the other, uh, Bubba got basically the main character, but like, well, this is about our career too, you know, and, and we're putting it on Jamal. Listen, by me losing the fight, I hurt your career. Because at the end of the day, it's your job to go out there and fight. You may not get your pick, but it doesn't mean you can't go out there and fight and still win. Right. If I lose my fight, then that affects my career. I'm done. I, I'm out the competition unless I get the wild card slot. So, so don't talk to me about your career, your situation, when I'm on the, like, the chopping block. Yep. But that was just totally crazy to me. Yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. It's tough to, to have a guy sit there when you're looking at the guy and you're telling him, dude, are you walking in my shoes? I'm, you know, it's, it, it's like I'm on death row status right now. And, and you want to talk yeah. to me about how I should be worried about you. It's like, dude, I need to worry about me. And I understand that frustration because 
you're in that you're in a very unique predicament in the sense that it's like you got to go out there and show one way or the other, either wild card or 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 on a card, either way, because that's the second look. That's the look that matters now. Yeah, yeah, and like, and, and the thing is, honestly, you know, nobody on my team really came up to me and talked to me, like, and expressed the concerns. They're like, who knew how I would have reacted? You know, maybe I'd have been like, you know, if everybody would have sat me down, we talked like a team and said, Jamal, you know, I really think that, uh, you know, we could do some different things. You know, maybe we could have came, came up with a better game, game plan instead of talking behind my back. Bro, it's like this. You talk behind my back, and, and then you want to come talk to me? It's it's a done deal. I don't want to hear you. Nope. It's kind of phony to me. No, that's that's one thing I've always said. It's like, look, man, I'd rather I'd rather be hated for what I am than love for what I'm not. So I'm just going to come and tell it to you like it is. If somebody would have came to you and said, listen, dude, you know, you need to go out there and strike more. You got a you got a background in boxing. Go out there and set the pace. You would have probably appreciated that, regardless of the outcome, because somebody showed interest and gave a damn. Yeah, it's, it's, and, and, and you know, and, and the truth is, it, it wasn't a whole team, and you know, so I don't feel like I'm being so negative on my team. No, I, I understand. Can understand these circumstances because, like I said, everybody was like. Everybody was safe about this. They wanted to be the champion or, or have the best shot at it. So I can understand uh, at a certain degree how things could have got played wrongly, you know, or hastily because of the fact that there's so much pressure, especially our first fight, and everybody wants to try to control the situation. You know, I, I think when you look back, I, I think we all could have done some things different, and, and maybe that could have affected the outcome. At the end of the day, it doesn't matter. They put me and Luke in the cage. They shut the door. I came out, you know, a loser, and Luke came out the winner, and, and that's the way it went. But, you know, I'm still here, man, and, and I, I, I can't wait to the finale, and, and there's always a possibility I can get that wild card, so I tell people to keep watching. Yeah, man, I'm, I'm pumped either way, like I said. I think, I think that what, what, you're, what you're doing and the way you're presenting yourself in a, in a genuine fashion is the way to go. That you're, don't, there's no necessity to go out there and, and do things in, in, in a way that, that paints you poorly. You're a family man, you know, you served our country, you have you have discipline about you, so to, to, to make it seem like, like there was any sort of issues with regard to conditioning or anything, it just, it would dictate that you have a lack of discipline, which coming out of the service is just impossible. Yeah, man. Yeah. Now, yeah I hear you. Especially with like, like, if, like if, you, if you see how I train and, and my, my other fights, you know, uh, a lot of times, like, you know, people, like, see things, and, and they tend to want to see the worst. Once again, once again, you know, to play devil's advocate, you know, at least for other guys, they only had a couple of days to evaluate me, and and they kind of decided to focus on, on, on the worst. And, you know, I guess they didn't really have a chance to really get to know me. And uh, it, it's unfortunate because I think things could have played out a, a little different, you know. At the end of the day, we did kind of bond. And, you know, we, we we became a stronger team afterwards. You know, but for me, it kind of sucked because I feel like I had to go through the worst. And if you see, there's an episode between uh, my episode and Adam episode. It's like the whole team rallied around him and, and uh, before, during, and after. And, like, and they always said positive stuff. In my episode, I'm like, I feel like I'm fighting Team Jones and Team Sonnet. <laughs> and, uh, and so it took me a while to get over that. Yeah, that's a, that. That's crazy. 
That's crazy because there's so much film and, and I see so much, you know, editing. And that's one of the funny things, the editing for that show and, and, and for previous seasons too, the editing kind of pushes a viewer's thinking in a certain direction, which is good and bad. Instead of just letting it play out organically and naturally, you're kind of in that situation where the, the, the way they portray it is the way that it is. And there's so much left on the cutting room floor that you don't get to see all the other facets that make up that particular episode. Yeah, you're right. Because you know why? Every time they, they had somebody talking about my cardio, they had a picture of me kneeling down, breathing hard. <laughs> I'm like, oh, man, they're really painting that picture. And it's just like what Josh the Bubble was saying was 100% correct. You know, I tend to, I, I tend to disagree. And I think my fight showed that, that um, regardless of what happened, I didn't really gasp. I never quit. You need to me put my hands on my knees. Even between rounds, I didn't sit down on a stool between rounds. You know, he takes me down. I'm wrestling to get back up, try to take him down. It was it was a hard it was a hard fight. So, you know, they did try to portray that maybe maybe I did have cardio issues. Yeah, it was the editing. The editing didn't do you didn't do you any favors. And I'm you know I'm I'm glad we got the chance to, you know, you you got to bring that out there because that's the thing that I, that's always boggled my mind watching past seasons where I'm like, oh, the way this is edited just makes certain dudes just either it makes them people rally behind them as viewers or it just paints them in a way that you're just like, oh, my God, get this guy off my TV. So it, it was crazy yeah. to see it go that route. Yeah. I, you know, and uh, I, I definitely do want to say that, you know, I, I, I felt like this this show can, can portray you in the wrong light. What? I kind of feel like there's yeah, a sense of reality in reality TV. People could be like, well, I said this, but I didn't really mean that. Like, but you said it. <laughs> yep, but you, you said know, it. You said it and did those things. Like, like you know, I never talked trash about nobody. I didn't go behind people back and talk trash behind them. So, like, so like if you did that and it's showing you doing that, and then, and then the whole, like, all the fans are calling you bad names, douchebag or whatever – you gotta kind of accept that because you you actually did that. No matter how they edit it. Yeah, that's that. That's the crazy part. It's almost. It's like just because you have a mask on TV doesn't mean that the person underneath isn't the same type of person. Yeah, I I I, I can agree with that. I mean, I see a lot of these guys, and and then you meet some of them in person. You're like, wow, you're you're a little you're a little different, and that's that's just part of the way that the the whole reality TV element is in there. Yeah, you know, I, I think the only thing that's different is that these guys probably, probably are way different in like in real life situation. It was just the fact that it, it wasn't the TV that made them look like that. I think it's probably the situation. Here he is, fourteen guys, tough guys, trying to fight for the biggest contract of their life. Of course, a lot of things will come out wrong. People will say things wrong, do things wrong. Whatever the case may be. So I think it's more the situation than editing. Well. One of the things I wanted to ask about that, on average, how many how many hours were the cameras on? Like, what was a typical day for you? Like, what what time did your day start when you guys were in the house? Um, the cameras were always there. There's cameras everywhere. Like, <laughs> <laughs> there's cameras in the bathroom, in the showers. And there's uh, this cameraman walking around looking at us. They're always there looking for the opportunity to get a good... TV scene. Jeez. So uh, you have to get used to that. 
How'd that how'd that work out for you the first few days? <laughs> yeah, I was funny. I thought it was funny. I thought it was funny when we started talking and the cameraman would come out of nowhere like a bunch of ninjas. I thought it was funny. I was cool. <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't affect me one bit. You know, I, I don't think I changed. You know, I think I was kind of the same person. The, the only thing I think I did different is that I made sure it's like when we have like really deep interviews, I try not to curse or say things that would be offensive. Say things that my kids couldn't see, right. or couldn't hear. You know what I'm saying? Like you know, but like in a, in a regular situation, I probably was a little crazy myself. But I, I, I try to kind of mature myself a little bit because yeah, it's on national TV and I got kids. You know, but it was kind of like a little goofy. You know, I thought that was cool too. I um one thing that that was crazy to me was in that first in those fights to get into the house you know you had you had like people there for you which was yeah i, I felt that was the first time i've ever seen that and i tried to look back at some of the older seasons i'm like i don't remember anybody ever like being there for the for their you know for the, the fighters it was, was the, the first, first right we tried it out. yeah we was allowed to bring um four people wow uh, any, any four people of your choice I mean, they had to pay the old ESA and hotel stay, but they got tickets to come and watch a fight. Now, mind you, when we flew into Vegas, they locked us down. Like, like for, for instance, my wife flew in, and she had to fly in on a different flight. And as soon as we landed in Vegas, they picked us up from the airport, and that was it. My wife was actually staying in the same hotel I was staying in, but I couldn't see her because we couldn't leave our room. Wow. And... You know, maybe some people snuck out of the room or whatever. I was too scared to leave, so <laughs> I stayed in my room and I made sure I didn't do no contact, so so I wouldn't get in trouble. That's it crazy. Was, it was very weird to to have my family, my wife, and my friends there, and I really couldn't see them until they said we could have. That's insane. Yeah, that was that was amazing to see, and I just felt I felt that that was something that. If if it's gonna be the norm, should be instituted because these guys, you once you guys go behind closed doors and you guys get locked down for seven weeks, that's it. But to have your family there cheering you on and, and it being so intimate, it it, it motivates you a little more because I'm sure you were in the zone regardless. But having your family there and it being in such a more intimate setting probably just helped bring that full circle for you. Yeah. Um... Uh, it, it definitely did for me to to get that first win in front of my wife in front of my friends. I mean, you couldn't you, you you couldn't replace that with anything. You know, it was it was the biggest moment of my life, and the only thing I wish that I, my kids could have saw it too. Yeah, how how old how old are your are your kids, Gilbert? Uh, I got a uh, sixteen, fifteen, and ten. Oh, okay, so they so they so they so they're able to watch Dad put in work without it it being traumatizing. <laughs> Oh yeah, they, they 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 go to all my fights. Oh, okay, that's and awesome. Before I fight, and even before I was fighting, they came to all of my grappling tournaments and stuff like that. Oh, that's real cool, man. I know a lot of people they try to 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 shelter their kids a little bit, or they try to bring them in gradually. But that's good if they've been if, if they've been with you every step of the way. I'm sure that's an incredible motivator. Yeah, I mean, if I, my son, you know, he's a wrestler himself. Uh, uh, last year, he took six in state, and um. This is something that uh, 
Well, I don't know if he wants to be a fighter. He always talks about being a football player, but whatever. How would you How would you feel if he if he said he's like, Dad, you know, I wanna I wanna take that step? Well, first and foremost, I want him to get his education. You know, I want you know people ask me, do I train my son? Do I teach him jujitsu or kickboxing? Ah, I want him to keep wrestling because wrestling can lead to a scholarship. That's right. I'm sorry, boxing doesn't, your boxing doesn't lead to a scholarship. Jiu-jitsu don't lead to a scholarship. So, uh, for the most part. So, you know, I want him to become the best wrestler he could be, get a scholarship, go to college, um, you know, get a degree. If he wants to see uh, do fighting afterwards, then, then uh, whatever, I'll be there for him. Yeah, that's that. See, that's the thing. And I remember when I when I went I went to high school. I went to high school with Julius, so you could crack jokes on him later. Um, you know, I they you know I did weightlifting in high school, and it was it was always disheartening because it's like you go you do weightlifting, and then it's like there's no scholarship, there's nothing. It's like you know I pick things up, I put things down. <laughs> you know, that's it. Yeah. So so for yeah. you to, to 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 push your son in that path and kind of you know lean him towards that is solid because you're you're preparing that future it's true it's like you know, brazilian jiu-jitsu until it pays it until it pays for you know fifty thousand dollar a year college tuition it's 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 great to know it but you yeah. need that foundation that'll pay the bills i mean uh, you know i mean he, he still practices jiu-jitsu and stuff like that but you know i don't really push that too much before because a lot of wrestling so what people don't realize is that you know education is the biggest thing to me like like right now i'm in school I'm working on my dual masters. I work. Uh, I got about three classes left before I have a masters in project management and also a uh, MBA. So you know, I really try to show a good role model to my kids, saying that yes, I could follow my dreams and fight, and I could still be educated, and I have a full-time job, and I teach, and I have my own MMA school. So I, I really try to use my life as a as an inspiration to my kids and other people. No, that's a. That's a that, that's a hell of a way to do it. I mean, a lot a lot of people they they get enamored with the with the fighting lifestyle. Same thing with you know I, I'm a, I'm a wrestling fan, so a lot of, a lot of people get enamored with that type of of lifestyle until they learn that it's not it's not all glitz and glamour. There's a lot of hard work. I mean, I I know guys that have wrestled you know in high school and in college, and they and they say it. It's like when that door shut and you got to cut weight, that's you in there by yourself. <laughs> That's why, that's why I actually like fighting, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, boxing. I like that one-on-one. I never been like you know a big team person. You know, I came up in New York, you know what I'm saying, and, and I played basketball and used to play basketball in Jersey and, and hit the streets and everything. But um, you could lose a game not because you wasn't on point, was because you know somebody on your team kind of was slacking off, which is annoying. But like in fighting, no matter what happens, bro. You can't blame nobody. It's you and the other guy, and you have to go out there and perform. Like I said in my fight, I can't blame John Jones for my loss. I can't blame my team for my loss or Team Turner for my loss. I got to blame myself. I made some cushion mistakes that I have to focus on, and I I take the good with the bad. Nope, that's the only way you got to do it. I think the toughest part is that being able to take a step back and reassess and see where where the holes in your game are because. Yeah, for you, anybody can say, you know, I'm a mixed martial artist. I know, I I know what I know. But it's like, yeah, but you know what? Yeah. Every day there's a lesson waiting to be learned. Hundred mm-hmm. percent. Yeah, uh, I mean, it was that was obviously the biggest 
lesson you could you could learn. You know, I mean, there's so many things you could take away from that fight. It's, it's unbelievable. First and foremost, you're sitting there fighting in front of Dana White and, and cameras. You know, like national TV. Never done that before. So that's a good learning lesson and how that feels. <laughs> Second of all, you know, you know, as an amateur, I'm seven and zero. As a pro, I was five and one, and the one loss was a close decision. I never got finished by by TKO or submission or KO or whatever. So, so to actually go through that, it was shocking to me, and and, and I was emotional for for a while. You know, people could call me a crybaby, and I, I am kind of a little bit of emotional dude. I don't know why. I'm just saying I could watch Bandy and start crying. That's the way I am. But um, uh, uh, it, it really taught me a, a lot of lessons with dealing with a loss, and also. To be in there and to fight against such crazy odds, it showed me that I have the toughness. I have the skills. I can make it happen. I need to believe in that a lot more. Takes a lot of grit, man, to go in there, especially, you know, with you having been in the armed forces and been active and been deployed. You know, you there's certain there's certain things you see out there and then you disconnect and come back to reality and it, and it reinforces a certain type of grit, but, like, you were saying before, you know, when it's you and your opponent, there's no teams, there's no coaches, it's you and the other guy. Yeah, man. It's it's tremendous, That's man. It. You know, I, I, I commend you no. for it. I did I did want to ask, I you know, I, I in doing some homework I saw that you had done an interview with Junkie and you were talking about, you know, learning learning how to do submissions and how you were you were paired with with a girl first during yeah, training. Man. And I wanted to ask you about that just because it's like, you know, I, I, I laugh because you say you could go in there and bench 400 pounds, but, you know, she's tapping me out like it's nobody's business. And I just wanted to ask you about that because, you know, how, how, how was that initially in terms of just learning a new, a, a new discipline? How did, that, how did that make you feel, you know, coming in there and being like, you know, I'm a big dude. I'm going to come in there and do what I got to do. And then realizing that there was more to it. Well, I've always considered myself to be a very athletic dude, strong dude, you know, and I, I, I had, a, I guess, I guess in some realms, a little bit of ease. And, and, you know, and I felt awkward going with a female. You know, and, and you know, sometimes I still do. Um, however, she taught me that technique and skills could come in all different flavors. And if you believe in yourself, you can overcome big, uh, big uh, challenges. And the fact that, you know, I bodybuilt for a little bit, and I probably was, you know, the, the basic meathead, you know, growing up, you know, I thought benching and squatting and curls get the girls, that's all I really matter. <laughs> you know, so I figured that, you know, my muscles should be enough to, like, beat anybody, at least somebody that was smaller than me. You know, so uh, she proved me wrong, and, and and I've been hooked ever since. You know, I actually don't know the girl name, nothing about her, and um, it's funny because... Uh, she changed my life, and and uh, and I'm, I'm not even sure if she even knows it. That's insane. It, I like I like uh, curls for the girls because I remember all that. I remember that stuff in high school. I remember you going in there, squat, deadlift, bench, and it's like, yeah, you know, look at all this muscle. And it's like, if, if if you're if you're built like Tarzan and and you get tapped, it's like, damn, you know, you're like, I I, I didn't even get a move in. <laughs> yeah, man. Yeah, it, it, it's crazy because you know I'm actually. Uh, my daytime job, I'm a master trainer at 24 Hour Fitness in Colorado Springs. And um, and I see guys coming to the, to the gym all the time doing me head workouts. They bench, they grunt, and I'm like, man, I could, I could probably bring in my 125 fighter and smash you. You don't even know. 
you know, I mean, to walk around with the arms out, you know, like, I was like, okay, you got some muscles. I give you that. But you're not bad. You're not tough. No, I, you know, I took, I took martial arts when I was younger. Um, I embraced the weights in high school and that was my thing. But it, it was always, it was always training and, and, and people laugh. They're like, oh, you know, why aren't you super big? And I'm like, look, man, I want to be strong to be able to pick up a refrigerator in my house or, you know, if some if 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 something falls on one of my sisters, I could I could pick it up off of them. Like like I'm not in this to look pretty, you know. Yeah. And that's the mindset I you got to cool. take. Yeah, I mean it's cool to have some um, beach muscles. You know, um, uh, I, I, there's nothing you know uh, wrong with that. Uh, but in this sport, you got to have functional strength. Yep. Not just strength, and, and, and there's a difference. Yeah, functional strength speaks volumes because that's that's what that's what gets you through, you know, that third round with with four minutes yeah. left, that 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 championship fifth round, functional strength, not pretty strength. Because right. um, right, you know, because if you look at it in my fight, like when you know, look look would take me down. Functional strength is being able to get back up. In awkward positions. Yep. You know, because I'm, I'm not going to sit there and try to bench press him off me. Hell no. <laughs> you know, you know, and I, and I can't sit there and squat him off me because I'm not in those dominant positions. I'm in half guard trying to get up from the cage and this and that. This is all dealing with a lot of functional stability, balance, all that good stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, just, just, like to wall, you know, to be front on, on your back and try and wall walk out. That's not. That's something that's built from functional strength. That's a combination of, you know, multiple limbs, smaller muscle fibers, just trying to get up there and, and, and use that to your advantage because it's a very unnatural position. Yeah, man. Yeah, for sure. You know, um, and even somebody like Lou, Lou that probably don't bench press as much, you know, you know, for, for him to be able to, like, when I took him down, for him to get back up is, 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 is the same thing. Like, he doesn't bench press, but he was able to use his his leverage, his strength, and uh, to get back up. So, you know, when, when people look at our training and how we train, it's a lot different. And people have a misconception because I can't tell you how many times people have Facebook me ask me how much I bench. I don't oh, jeez. I mean, I, I, I take it back. I do bench, but I don't bench heavy. I don't bench a lot, and, and like I don't really work on my chest. The stuff that I do, dealing with kettlebells and TRX and and uh, different uh, power lifting and, and, and different combinations, CrossFit workouts. It's like I don't I, I don't just get some dumbbells or barbell and bench a thousand pounds and do bicep curls. Although that was the running joke on the show. Like everybody talked about how much I bench and how much <laughs> I curl. I was like, you talked about it all day long. Yeah, well, I mean that 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 ends up becoming your your bread and butter. It's like when when you're good at something, it's just it's just gonna happen, and that's fine. But there's more to it than that. It seems like we both dropped out. Hold on one second while we deal with these uh, technical difficulties. We'll be right back. Can you guys hear me in there? Yeah, I can hear you. All right. This is, uh, I apologize, Gilbert, just uh, technical issues out the ass this evening. <laughs> yeah, man. It's all good. All right, so now that we are uh, back on the ball, I did want to... As I said, this um, before this service just decides to 
really just screw us over completely. I did want to ask, and this was something that I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are going to be curious about, the um, the Uriah Hall knockout. I wanted your thoughts on it, especially from a, from a cast member standpoint and how you felt. Well, uh, okay, so here's the funny thing about that. First and foremost is that as Chill picked Uriah to fight Adam, Adam actually wanted to fight, U- uh, fight Uriah. You know, uh, coming in from fighting, uh, from the fight to get in the house, Adam came back and said to everybody on the team, he was like, hey, I want to fight Uriah. He just didn't want to fight Uriah so early. And that's because of the fact that his hand was hurting and he had a little bit of a, of a uh, uh, sternum problem from, from the slam. So, so when they picked it, we were like, okay, well, this kind of like the matchup he wanted, but uh, we did realize that it wasn't the best time for Adam to be fighting. Either way, during the fight, man, Adam went out there and, and I'm, I apologize. I got the hiccups. It's killing me. All right. No worries. Considering what we yeah, just endured, but, um, it's all good. <laughs> yeah, I know. Right? <laughs> it's a crazy night. But um, Adam actually went out there and, and really put, you know, took the fight to Uriah, which I think was the best strategy. <laughs> I, think, I, th- I, I think if you sit there and, and let Uriah get off, he's going to come off with crazy stuff. And what really happened was, I think the last ten seconds, maybe Adam got a little bit, you know, relaxed because he's like, "Okay, we're going to the next round." And then uh, that's when Uriah decided to pounce. But I thought before that it was pretty even, maybe going to Uriah a little bit, but it wasn't like Adam was getting beaten up too bad. Gotcha. the The crazy thing is, obviously, editing played a big part, but. The, the viciousness of that knockout and just the way that it captured the, the crowd just going completely silent and the guy not moving, I'm like, oh, my God. you know And don't get me wrong, Dana White did a, a tremendous job hyping it up, and he really just brought it full circle. But to see that firsthand, it's, it's, it's a little mind-blowing because I've seen tons of knockouts, but with regards to the Ultimate Fighter, other than the Matt Riddle knockout, this was just, it just, it was just insane, you know? Yeah, uh, it, it was a bad knockout. I, I thought that um, I actually thought that Adam was really hurt, and um, and the way he was breathing was, was was very scary, you know. And 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 what people got to understand too is that Adam was like the most light guy in the house. I mean, you know, he was especially especially on our team. He was very fun. He was very funny. He was very upbeat. He was very positive. He was he was a cool guy. So to see that happen to him, it was like, dang, I didn't want that to happen. And I and I, and I even kind of felt it was kind of my fault because I lost the fight, which gave Chael Sonnen the, the, uh, the power to pick it. So you know, so watching it, I'm sitting like I'm sitting back, kicking kicking myself like I may have caused this to happen. That's yeah, that's that that's tough for you to feel that way because I I can understand the the logistics on why you would feel that way, but it you know. It's it's uh, it's a crazy set of circumstances, but I can definitely empathize with what you're what you're feeling because it's it's a crazy feeling. You say to yourself, "Man, had I had I gone in there and done things differently, then this wouldn't have happened to this guy." And it's 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 a hard it's a hard pill to swallow. Yeah, it was it was, and um, and, and watching it, like I mean, you you were thinking the worst. You were thinking possibly the worst. Uh, you know that that could happen to Adam. 
Yeah, especially with what you're saying. You know, he's such a nice guy, and um, right. you know, the, the, it it always hurts when you when you got a camaraderie with somebody and you see that person either you know through a hardship or or you know in his case obviously something like that that could just change everything because a lot of people were there was a lot of exaggeration on Twitter Twitter going crazy people were like oh you know the guy was out for like ten minutes and it's like he could not have been out ten minutes it's impossible because that that's brain damage time you know. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't think he was out that long. He was out for a minute, and then when he came through, like it, it kind of made everybody feel a little bit more comfortable. But you know, like you're seeing Dana White, they really have an awesome medical team, so they took care of him, and uh, he, he was good. Yeah, I got um one of our one of our MMA writers, Ben. I know he um he had some questions, so I'm gonna give him the floor real quick so he can pick your brain briefly. Ben, you're on, you're on there, right? Yeah, I'm on. All right, Ben. Ben Gilbert, Gilbert Ben. Ben, what do you got? <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah, he 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 basically asked a bunch of the questions I was trying to um, I was going to ask you, but uh, uh one of the big questions that was that. No, no, go ahead. Uh, one of the questions I was um had to ask you um with you being like five nine and you said you only cut from what about hundred what hundred ninety hundred ninety four or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you ever thought about moving down to Westway? Man, I'm going on the featherweight. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know the, the, the truth is, I thought about it, but I, I was never given a reason to. Cause, because I've always been very dominant in my fights, and even with tall guys and bigger guys, I never felt like I was the weak, weaker guy or, or, or I just couldn't compete. But I, did, but I did realize fighting in the UFC, these guys are the best in the world, so I can't sit there and play games with them. So, so yeah, I'm, I, you know, uh, after the finale, when that fight in the finale, Get a con- get a contract. I do plan to drop down to welterweight, and uh, but you know what though, it, it, here's the politics behind that. Mm-hmm. And once again, I apologize. Like every second word, I feel like I, I'm having a hiccup. But uh, and these hiccups is not yeah, these hiccups is not going away. But but anyways, the middleweight division, although it's stacked with talent, is not stacked with bodies. Mm-hmm. It, meaning that the welterweight got a lot of fighters. If you go down to the welterweight division, if you lose one or two fights, you're going to get cut quick. If you're in the middleweight and, and you fight a couple of times and you're still excited and you lose, they probably hold on to you a little bit longer than a welterweight. Because if you look at the numbers, you know the welterweight division like doubles the, the middleweight, the middleweight division when it comes to like sheer numbers of bodies. So maybe going out a welterweight is not the best opportunity when you talk about longevity. And you see this a lot. A lot of guys will lose a couple of fights, and just right before they're going to get clipped. They're like, oh, hold on, I'm a good out of weight class, and that gives them like another another career jump. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, yeah, I get I get what you're saying because you know you don't want to you don't want to just drop down just because you want to drop down and and know you have some sort of advantage. So I, I understand what you're saying. Yeah. Um, one other question. Uh, another question I had. Um, compared to like uh, what you thought of John Jones and Chelsea and like before the show. Like how how did being in the house with them like did that change what you thought yeah. about them did that reinforce anything? Man, man, that's a good one. That is a good one. Um, oh man, that's a good one. I gotta pick my words. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I think John is an awesome dude. I think he's a very giving dude, very caring, caring person. You know, um, he's learning coaching because you know he he wasn't he wasn't a coach. 
he's a fighter and he's the best at it. I think Chell had a little bit more experience in coaching and, and uh, he know how to reach out to people and fight a little bit better. Um, I do think that uh, I saw some things, you know, that I didn't like, but I think it was just circumstances. You know, the way I started that show, you know, it was so awkward, so weird. So weird. I don't think me and John got off on the right foot or he saw me in, the, in my best light. You know, so, like, our, our relationship, I don't think, was, 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 was as best as it could have been. And the truth is, you know, I kind of felt a little, little bit that, you know, my biggest kind of uh, enemy on the show was probably Bubba. And, and Bubba and John Jones is kind of a little bit, like, really close friends. So I don't know exactly the stuff that he told John Jones when I wasn't around. So I don't think John Jones uh, saw me in my best in my best view. And, and I think, and I think I kind of just kind of played off the way things like started off. Now, as far as Chell, Chell has been awesome. Like, you know, I, you know, I, I, I plan to go up and train with Chell. I'm going to finish up my fight camp with him. You know, um, and he, he, like, if, if, if you look at the show, hmm. Team Southern coaches was more supportive before, during, after my fight than, than my coaches. Not to say that my coaches wasn't there for me. Frank Mayer was awesome. Hiccups are killing me. John Wolf was awesome. You know, Bubba Jenkins was awesome. But they looked at me and they didn't see my true talent. They had a lot of doubt. And part of it really wasn't their fault. They gave feedback from my team members. They, they, uh, I'm probably wasn't showing them my best skills. It, so, so it was, it was kind of an interesting start. But I, I still learned a lot from everybody. All right. Um, did did you did you like how you were portrayed on the show? Um, you like you know, basically because uh, I think it was what, the second episode. I really it was mostly just your episode. Um, I'm not sure if any of the other episodes how they, how they portray you, but did you like how you were portrayed on the show? Yeah, I thought people got a got to say I was straight up dude. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't. If I could think that I'm a little bit emotional, you know, I cried a couple times, you know. Uh, but that's okay. I, I can admit that I could be emotional. That's fine. <laughs> that doesn't mean that I'm not going to fight hard. But um, but uh, I wasn't I wasn't an idiot, and I wasn't back backing down. You know what I'm saying? And, and also, I I wasn't there to play around and act stupid. So I, I I have no qualms with the way I was portrayed. All right. And uh, basically, my last question: Is this your first time um trying out for the Ultimate Fighter? Because I know uh, I've, I've heard uh, a lot of other fighters like, well, this is my second or third time, you know, coming to the trials. Um, like, is this your first time trying? No. Um, it was actually my third time. Oh. Wow. So I, I tried out three times. I actually tried out for the welterweight division, you know, uh, interestingly. Um, uh, it was last, last December, December 5th, I think. It was like almost my daughter's birthday. I went to Vegas and I tried out for um, – for, for the welterweight division, which which would have been the Shane uh, Carmen versus Roy Nelson season, which thank God I didn't make that season. <laughs> you beat me to <laughs> yeah, it. I was about to say that. that yeah, uh, that season was no no yeah. joke. I was like, oh man. <laughs> yeah, that season. I mean, I mean, it probably was some really great talent. So I don't want to disrespect none of the fighters on that show. That season almost killed the Ultimate Fighter. I agree, one hundred and ten percent. Yeah, I could. 
Fighter, I, that was the first season of Ultimate Fighter I made no effort to really watch after the first couple shows. <laughs> listen, listen, I'm I, I'm an I'm MMA fanatic. We can sit down here and argue about who fought who, who won this. Was, actually, I love that stuff. But I didn't watch, I maybe watched the first episode of that season, too. <laughs> yeah, it is incredible. This season, I really enjoy how it, how it changes uh, the editing. It just feels, um, feels more serious. It feels more like yeah. it feels based more around the fights than being, trying to be the big brother with fights. It just seems seems more like this is this is more serious. It is. I mean, yeah. there was so much pressure in this season. Like I said, last season almost killed the show. So if this season came out to be a big dud, the show would probably be done. And I and you don't and you don't want to be part of the, the season that 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 put the nail in the coffin of the Ultimate Fighter. So it, it was it was serious in all avenues from the production side to Dana White side to the coaching side to the fighter side. All right. Well, yeah, uh, that was all I really had to ask. Just risk it off like everything else. Oh, well, there you go, Ben. I, I I appreciate it. You came through for that. You know, minus all these um, technical issues. Yeah, and the hicc- hiccups. Yeah. yeah well, we're, we're we're gonna wrap everything up so you can uh you know have somebody scare you so you can stop hiccuping. Oh <laughs> man, well I don't know what's going on. I have to hiccup all day long. Oh man, well. Killing my diet, fast. It's like a really good core exercise, though. <laughs> well, to bring to bring everything full circle, of course, um, you can follow Gilbert on Twitter at Jamal Smith MMA, and of course, he represents yes, Colorado Victory MMA, ColoradoVictoryMMA.com. dot com. I like the shirt that Julius has sent my way. So I'm going to see if I can bag one of those. Yeah, man, you, you got to grab one. Yeah, I'll probably I'll, probably, I'll link up with you off air, and we'll try to set something up so I can get one. Sure. Anything else you want to add? Anybody else you want to acknowledge and and yeah. shout out? Yeah, yeah, definitely want to shout out. I'm the sponsor of Happy Long Way. Thank you, Restaurant. You know, again, our owner there, one of my best friends, really helped me out. Uh, Tyler Care, my chiropractor, David Lawrenson, another one of my best friends. Um, complete complete nutrition for always hooking up with great supplements. Um, I'm gonna shout out my wife and kids. I love them. My mother, my my father, you know, my sister, and and all my family, and uh, and Team Victory. Those guys really looked out for me. Uh, I, I just want to show everybody respect and um and then uh and, and let them know that I'm gonna make them proud. Well, you know, we'll we'll definitely be watching. I, you know, I wish you I wish you continued success. You know, I'm glad that that Julius came through and, and brought this together. You know, it was a, a pleasure talking to you, especially. You know, you have such an inspirational story. You have so much going for you. And while, while you know, the fame is nice, there's there's more to it. And, and I respect you for looking at it from that angle. Yeah. I appreciate it. Thank um, you, brother. If, if you need anything, you know, just, just hit me up. You got my information. For sure. I appreciate everything. All right, man. Take care of yourself. All right, brother. See ya. All right, that was Gilbert Smith, ladies and gentlemen. You can follow him at Jamal Smith MMA, if that's correct. Let me just make sure. Yep, at Jamal, J-A-M-A-L, Smith, S-M-I-T-H, MMA, on Twitter. 
And you can find out more by heading over to ColoradoVictoryMMA.com. Again, that's ColoradoVictoryMMA.com. Twitter, at Jamal Smith MMA. You can also find him on Facebook. And, you know, if you want to ask him any questions, look him up that way. I'm not going to give out his Facebook information because obviously that's kind of private. But you guys know how to use Facebook. You guys know the deal if you got any further questions. Um, very interesting turn of events that we had this evening, which normally at this point I would explode into a expletive laden rant about blog talk radio. But here's the funny thing right now. I am looking at my switchboard at five to one in the morning and it shows that I am dialed into my switchboard still as the host, which clearly from what you guys noticed for the last, I don't know, hour or so was not the case. I'm actually dialed in as a guest and queued up on the guest line to do the show. Meanwhile, you know, Ben and these guys are being brought in that way. Now, the crazy thing with that is that this is this is the new thing. This is the new blog talk radio issue. And, um, I'm you know, once we figure out a way to get the hell out of there, they're not going to take a single red cent because now this is the second week in a row where we've been really knee deep in a great interview in, in entrenched in giving you guys some some great radio and this is the 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 bullshit that happened so you know um, on behalf of myself and my team you know i apologize to you the listeners uh gilbert smith as well for taking time out to to even tough it out with us through these technical difficulties to to give you guys a kick-ass interview now let me get into some of the other mma news i wanted to discuss obviously we had a new episode of the ultimate fighter this week um which was, of course, the the big, historic, yada, yada, yada. You, you guys know the deal with, um, obviously, Uriah Hall and the Uriah Hall knockout, which if you haven't seen it at this point, shame on you. YouTube is your friend. But Uriah Hall, Team Son, and Adam Sella, uh, great fight, very competitive. Then Uriah Hall, knockout with a spinning back kick. Um, Adam Sella just, just hit the ground. It was a brutal and vicious knockout, probably probably one of one of the most devastating knockouts I've seen. I mean, a lot of people, and including Matt Riddle, have made a case for his knockout, which you know he broke the guy's jaw in three places. And and I agree that was a, a very devastating and brutal knockout, and that and I respect that. But you also have to take into consideration that in the history of this show, to to only have two super devastatingly nasty knockouts is is something that's a just a testament to the caliber of fighters that are there. Not to say that these fighters aren't going out there and giving it their all, but to see things like that, it, it's just it just shows that there's so much untapped talent out there. While the UFC obviously is home to so, to some of the best fighters in the world, there's still dozens upon dozens of great talent still out there, untouched, unblemished, and, and they haven't even gotten eye on them yet that are probably going to pave the way as the mixed martial artists of the future. So, uh, again, the Ultimate Fighter and, and shows falling under that same banner, and including um, shows that actually spotlight the fighters a little deeper. It, it really serves to give people a complete glimpse at a fighter. Like I was saying, um, Gilbert Smith has uh, a really solid set of YouTube videos. He actually shared them on Sherdog, just giving people a little bit of insight into his life and his day-to-day, and I think that that's probably one of the best things about the technology we have today, especially for up-and-coming fighters 
and um, even for our professional wrestlers and everybody else that's out there. It's the fact that you can go out there and you can really make yourself seen in in a multitude of, of places, whether it's YouTube or Vimeo or Twitter or Facebook. You're, you're afforded the opportunity to get yourself out there and establish yourself as a household name, which is tremendous. Um, I think that the best part is um, with that, especially in, in Gilbert's case, that you get to see so much more. You get to learn a little bit more, and it almost felt like it was a micro-episode of The Ultimate Fighter. And I actually am going to cite that as a great example using using Gilbert's case, where you're getting just a different glimpse into the fighter outside of the show. And honestly, that would be a, a tremendous asset to um, the uh, to the production side of things by doing these these micro episodes of these fighters, just almost like a spotlight about their day to day. You know how, kind of like UFC primetime, but just using something like that, maybe put it on the um, Ultimate Fighter channel on the website, or maybe put it on YouTube. Just little videos, nothing crazy. A little week to week showing their schools, their neighborhoods, their families. It'll just allow you to connect with the fighters on a, on a better level. And I really like that that Gilbert did because he's one of the few guys that I've seen doing that where they, they're really giving people a glimpse of the individual before they go into the house, before they're um, edited to death and made to look a certain way. So really, that's that's a tremendous thing that that can be used going forward. I think that was one of the things I also liked with with Tough Enough when WWE had the first early stages of Tough Enough. Not the stuff now, but the earlier stuff that kind of it showed, you know, their casting tapes and and what they did to get there and, and things like that. They share just like I said, it helps you connect better. It, it really it really helps you connect better and it helps you follow these fighters with a more vested interest. Like I said, when. When when Julius told me about Gilbert and I started doing my homework and getting ready to set up the interview, it was it was good to see that that here's an individual like a lot of these a lot of these new fighters coming up that really embraced these outlets of social media and were were actually fully aware that they can touch their fan base directly. And I think it just speaks volumes of how the sport is evolving. You don't wake up tomorrow as a fan of, say, Ray Lewis, and you're able to go to Ray Lewis's Facebook and connect with Ray Lewis, or you're not able to really go on Twitter and connect with Ray Lewis directly. It, it, it's weird because, yeah, it, it's, it's a more extreme example but that's what I'm saying with, with the beauty of mixed martial arts. Right now, we got the MMA Expo next week in here in New York City at the Javits, the 16th and the 17th. And, you know, the Diaz brother, uh, Nate Diaz is going to be there, uh, Uriah Hall, a couple of fighters. Um, there's going to be a booth there for East Coast MMA, which is one of the MMA shops here in New York City. Um, one in Brooklyn and one out on the island. And to be able to go to one of these events and just connect with your with, with one of your favorite fighters or just a fan favorite and talk to them and and pick their brain a little bit in in a, in a casual atmosphere. It's it's not the same with one of your favorite basketball players or one of your favorite football players. It's it's different, and that's one of the things as a fan that I really 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 enjoy. Anyway, let me get into the rest of the MMA news for this week, um, especially considering we are roughly an hour in. Just a quick reminder that the Blog Talk Radio feed will cut off at two a.m. Eastern, but we will continue the show. And you can listen to it via the Mixler feed, M-I-X-L-R. 
do yourselves a favor. Make sure to go to our Facebook fan page. You can click the Mixler tab there and listen to the show that way. I'm going to also remind you guys about that closer to the 2 a.m. mark. I'm sure you guys will hear the English lady come on and give me shit for um, the show ending. So just a quick reminder. Anyway, let me get into the other MMA news. Obviously, when Ben was on, we were talking about some of the fighter salaries. Like I said, Alistair Overeem made $285,000. Rashad Evans made $300,000. Frankie Edgar made $120,000. And Jose Aldo made $240,000. Now, crazy as it may sound, Damian Maia made $120,000. That includes a $60,000 win bonus compared to John Fitch's $66,000. Joseph Benavides made $60,000. That included a $30,000 win bonus to Ian McCall's $9,000. It's, it's, it's incredible the, 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 the huge differences in certain fighter pay. But you also got to take into consideration that these figures don't include deductions for insurance, licenses, and taxes. These figures also do not include money paid by sponsors, which sometimes um, can be for one, you know, can be a big portion of a fighter's income. Josh Coleman in the Mixler chat asked if that's a salary for one fight. Yes, my friend, it is a salary for one fight. Alistair Overeem made $285,000 for one evening's work. So did Rashad Evans making $300,000, etc., etc., etc. Tyron Woodley made $87,000. That included a $43,500 a $43, win bonus to Jay Haran's $12,000. Now, if you want to look up these figures, you can go to MMAJunkie.com and you can see for yourselves. But like I said, all of these numbers, while they are extremely high in some cases, like I said, you got to factor in that insurance licenses, taxes weren't deducted. That also didn't include additional monies from sponsors. But you also got into consideration any other bonuses that were dispersed. And you also have to take into account the trainers that were paid, sparring partners that were brought in, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So that money, once you strip out all of that, it's it's going to definitely go down to more respectable levels. Now, while we're on the subject of fighter salaries and metrics and things like that becoming public, it seems that the UFC has decided to embrace and create their own official ranking system. They're partnering with Fight Metric to provide UFC fighter rankings, which were released on the web Earlier this week, I got to check them out. I didn't get a chance to to clip them and throw them in my show notes. But like anything else, when you are on the subject of rankings, you're looking at it from the standpoint that the rankings are something that are going to really, really, really cause a lot of discussion. Primarily because that's one of those things where... There's there's so much interpretation out there, like why is this guy ranked number three when he should be ranked number five? Why is the number five guy up in the number two slot? What what fa- you know what things are are gonna be involved in making a fighter rank higher than another fighter? It's gonna raise a ton of questions, and it's gonna be good and bad. But at least now the UFC has their own system. Um, what's gonna happen is the voting. The way it works is. The fight metric rankings are going to poll opinions from sports media worldwide. And, of course, this is going to be recognized by the UFC, and it's going to be integrated into broadcasts and featured on UFC.com. Now, what's going to happen is that the voting is going to open to the media immediately after each event with the results made available on UFC.com within 24 hours. So it's going to be based on more so polling opinions from sports media than 
some sort of a governing body, which again is going to raise a lot of questions because everybody has their own opinions and these things are going to factor in and maybe three out of five don't like, I don't know, Nick Diaz. So just because they have a bias against Nick Diaz, it may affect his ranking, which to me is something of great, great concern. Now, of course, with, with that in mind, if there was a governing body of mixed martial arts that dispersed those rankings as well, that would also cause issue. But it's good to see that things are starting to become uh, more clear when it comes to ranking fighters. Obviously, we can all create rankings. We can have rankings. Middle Easy can have rankings. MMA Junkie can have rankings. But now you have one standard that's open for interpretation by everyone, but at least it's recognized by one major promotion. Obviously, those those rankings are going to differ from how Bellator sees fighters or how Titan, Titan Fighting Championship sees fighters or how 1FC uh, sees fighters. But again, for the UFC, I think this is a step in the right direction. It starts giving people a better glimpse. It raises a lot of conversation, and it just continues to get fighters out there, especially when you're taking into consideration that sports media worldwide are going to be asked about some of these fighters, many of which they may have not even heard of, and it's going to give them a chance to get placement in the UFC ranking system. Now, of course, this weekend is fight week. We got UFC 157, um, Ronda Rousey, Liz Carmouche. That's um, 23rd. And, of course, we had Bellator tonight. Every week just feels... Every week is fight week to me now. Not even because of the show, but think about it. You got Bellator every night after Impact, which is, is, a, is a fight night all its own. And then you got the Ultimate Fighter Tuesday. So every week is fight week for me as an individual. Anyway, we got UFC 157 on the 23rd. The UFC primetime special for Rousey and Carmouche is already making the rounds. I shared the video on our Facebook fan page. I DVR'd it, so I'll probably watch it after the show's over. Ronda Rousey, Liz Carmouche, of course, women's bantamweight title is your main event for the evening. Dan Henderson and Leota Machida, co-main event. Uriah Faber, I Faber, excuse me, Uriah Faber, B-E-R, versus Ivan Menjavar, Manny Gambirian taking on Chad Mendes, and Josh Koscheck taking on Robbie Lawler, which that, that fight has fireworks written all over it. On the prelims, which will be on FX, you got LeVar Johnson, Brendan Schaub, uh, Mike Chiesa from The Ultimate Fighter. He's taking on Anton uh, Quivenen. I'm sure I, I killed that guy's name. Court McGee's taking on Josh Neer, and Carlos Fedor is taking on Sam Stout. If you want to check out the prelims, those will be on Facebook. Um, Neil Magny's taking on John Manley. Brock Jardine's taking on Kenny Robertson, and Dennis Bermudez is taking on Matt Grease. That's going to be on Facebook, 6.30 p.m. Eastern. Mark that down on your calendars, February 23rd. History will be made as the women take center stage in the octagon. Switching gears, but still addressing the ladies, um, one particular individual uh, is Zoila Gergel, who was a champion in Bellator. And obviously there was a lot of issues with her during her tenure in Bellator. She was a champion there at the time, never defended the belt for you know a, a multitude of reasons. She was brought back after an injury that she sustained. She lost her bout in 58 seconds of the first round via submission. And, you know, obviously there were issues because considering she was a champion, she wasn't allowed to fight on the main card. She fought on the smaller card. Then in 2011, there were issues with regards to insurance. Well, Zoila Gurgel now has parted ways with Bellator and will now be fighting with Invicta FC. 
Rumors uh, are floating around that she will be debuting in the April 6th event. Either way, I think in Zoyler Gergel's case, Invicta FC is a better home for her. I think the weight class she's in uh, really didn't afford her any opportunities as champion because she had no opponents. I think by going into Invicta, there's a, a wealth of talent there. It'll allow her the opportunity to showcase her skills. And given that Invicta right now is kind of in its infancy and is testing out various methods to get their fights out there to the general public, it, it, it really feels a little bit more intimate in the sense that you can really appreciate the grit of the promotion by by supporting them directly. Obviously, you know, you could plunk down $60 for a UFC pay-per-view, but not all of that money goes to the UFC time. Warner takes some money, then the UFC makes some money, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You go, when you buy an Invicta FC pay-per-view, you are supporting the promotion directly. Yeah, obviously, you know, iPay-per-view is going to get their cut, but think about it. You're dropping $10 at best, maybe between 7 and 10 It's a drop in the bucket considering that you're supporting an entire promotion of of hard-nosed, up-and-coming female fighters that are the future of this sport. So, personally, I have no problem dropping that money, and I think Zoyler Grigel will benefit from being there. Going into some UFC news, I wanted to talk about a couple of stories making the rounds before I wrap things up. Obviously, the big one, Randy Couture uh, going to Bellator to handle Bellator's reality show, Obviously, Dana White, extremely pissed off. Uh, one of the things that's really made the rounds this week is the fact that Randy Couture, uh, Dana White doesn't even want him cornering his son, which um, I don't know. I think it's it's very, very difficult for me to comprehend, especially in Dana White's logic, why he would say that. Because as a parent, you know, well, in my case, as an Insta dad, you know, ra- raising my two sisters, when, when you're a parent, you want to go and be there for your kid in, in any milestone, in any accomplishment, in any great achievement that they have going for them. And think about this. Ryan Couture gets the opportunity to fight in the UFC. It, it's huge. Um, there's It's crazy because he, um, you know, like anything else, you have your, your parent there and you really want them to see you fight. And, and you're basically telling this kid, hey, your dad can't be here to watch you fight if you fight for my organization. I'm sorry, Dana White, you're, you're a great businessman and, and you're entitled to your opinions. But how are you going to tell a son that he can't have his father there for, for his moment, for his achievement? I think, I think using that kind of logic or even insinuating that kind of logic in, in no uncertain terms is, is fucked up. It's, a, it's really a fucked up thing to do. To really your your animosity towards a guy is is so deep because he went and found an opportunity elsewhere that you're genuinely not allowed you genuinely contemplate not allowing him to watch his son fight. It, it's a travesty and, and me personally I just feel that it's it's bad for business. Look, you don't have to like Randy Couture, you don't have to even respect what he's doing, but you know what? He's doing what he's doing. He he closed out his deal. He went elsewhere. He felt that there were opportunities elsewhere. Just accept it and move on. Hey, man, listen, it didn't work out. We're sorry. But don't don't paint the type of picture where you're looking at it like, oh, man, your your dad's not allowed here. It's, it, uh, I, I'm just not I'm not cool with that. I'm not cool with that at all. And obviously, this this is something that's 
kind of snowballed and made its way through the internet. And I've read a couple of different interpretations about it. But like I said, me personally, I don't feel that it's the right thing to do if that's the stance you're willing to take by telling a son that their that their father who fought for your organization and bled for your organization can't be there because he was looking for opportunities elsewhere. Look, you don't got to talk to the dude. You don't got to shake hands with the dude. But if he's got a corner of his son, let him. If his son can't wear, you know, extreme couture clothing, fine. You're hitting him where it hurts. But don't don't do that, man. Don't don't make it that type of an issue. That's all I gotta say. The other big news, of course, Anthony Showtime Pettis dropping from lightweight to 145 to challenge Jose Aldo. It's rumored that this fight is gonna be taking place August 3rd. Honestly, Anthony Pettis, no joke, pretty much texted Dana White right after the fight with um, Edgar and um, Aldo, and he was like, look, I want the next shot. Obviously, other fighters are a little pissed off, but I got I to gotta be honest with you guys in saying Anthony Pettis has not has been on the cusp of an opportunity for the longest time, and multiple things get in the way. Other opponents, changes to the fights, etc., etc. I really have to commend him for going into business for himself. He said, fuck it. This is the fight I want. This is what I want to do. And he did it. Simple as that. I really, really want to see that. I want to see that fight. I think Anthony Pettis and Jose Aldo are going to deliver an amazing, amazing fight. Simple as that. All right. <clears throat> before before I wrap things up, uh, Tiago Tavares was the guy that tested positive for steroids. A lot of people thought it was Vitor Belfort. Turned out it was Tiago Tavares. The UFC confirmed that. On their site, they released a press release. All 22 fighters on the UFC on FX7 card were drug tested at the event, and all fighters passed their drug test with the exception of Tiago Tavares. The results of Tavares showed the presence of drostanolone, an anabolic steroid and banned substance. Tavares has been informed that he will receive a nine-month suspension retroactive to the date of the event and that he must pass a drug test upon completion of the suspension before receiving clearance to compete again. So there you have it, folks. Not Vitor. Tiago Tavares was the culprit, ladies and gents. Sucks for that guy. Anyway, we're going to jump into the wrestling segment. I'm looking at the clock, and uh, Slick is also in my ear reminding me, because it's true, that we were still in the first segment. Thank you, Slick, for setting me on the course. Anyway, let's talk wrestling, shall we? Alright, so let's get into Monday Night Raw, which was, I honestly felt, a stronger show than most of the recent three-hour Raws I've seen. I think they had uh, some solid matches, obviously. I gotta say that that Ryback-Cesaro match was was pretty damn good. I think that there's tremendous potential there for a nice feud between these guys. I think that the, the well-seasoned veteran hand of Antonio Cesaro would assist Ryback in becoming a more complete performer. I think Ryback right now is in a period 
of of development in the sense that he's being groomed for the main event slot, but he needs that one standout feud, that one moment to push him over the top. And yeah, you know, he had his 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 glimpses of greatness involved with CM Punk and and etc. at the Rumble, but in terms of just feuds, it's one of those things that I always say makes a performer and completes a guy's transition from a mid-carder to a main eventer. It's that one feud, that one intangible that makes you talk about that guy for years to come. This goes back to what I've said in situations like Flair Steamboat or, you know, Savage Hogan, Rock Triple H, Rock Stone Cold. These are feuds that made these guys, Mick Foley, Triple H, and I think Ryback is in a, a prime position that he needs that type of a feud to really bring things full circle in his case. I think, you know, obviously he, he beats Cesaro, which may or may not raise a question of whether Cesaro should uh, give Ryback a U.S. champion uh, title, a U.S. championship title opportunity. But nonetheless, the match was pretty good. The returning Jack Swagger took on a Santino Morella with the ankle lock that is now called the Patriot Act. Obviously, Santino did the job in this match to help Swagger get over. Looked a little different. I think um, there was some good storytelling in there. Just bringing up the continuity of Jack Swagger losing the U.S. title to Santino last year, which was the start of Swagger's downward spiral. I really like that. I, I, I really appreciate that they took the time to really just cultivate that storyline and bring it full circle. So kudos to those guys. Del Rio took on Cody Rhodes. Obviously, Cody Rhodes did the job in this match. Um, the Big Show threatening Del Rio, blah, 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 extending that feud. Blech. Rey Mysterio and Daniel Bryan was a really, really solid match. I think that Daniel Bryan really complimented Mysterio in this match. A lot of people feel that Rey Mysterio's not moving the same way he he's he used to because of obvious injuries, weight gain, etc. I think that it's just the unevolving, uh, just an evolvement of the uh, excuse me, an evolving style that's really no longer Mysterio's wheelhouse. In other words, what I'm saying is Daniel Bryan can do the high flying, he can do the catch wrestling, he can do the submission wrestling, he can do the brawling. Rey Mysterio is always going to be the high flyer. Rey Mysterio brawling just doesn't look right. Rey Mysterio trying to do submission wrestling at this point, it's it's something that just doesn't feel natural. So when you see him in there with certain guys that really can't complement his style, it, it really shows how the business has evolved and Rey Mysterio hasn't been able to evolve with it due to injuries and issues. Daniel Bryan's match with him really brought that full circle and made it very, very obvious to me. And I said to myself, damn, you know, Ray looks really not to, not not to say I don't dislike Ray, but I'm like, damn, Ray looks really old in this match and really out of shape. And obviously this is just a factor of injuries and, and changes to the way he has to wrestle. And, and these are all things that, that happen to a lot of these high flying guys that they kind of live and die by the sword. You know, the body takes a, a huge amount of damage, especially with so many of these cruiserweight moves and it's a shame because Rey Mysterio, I think he still has a lot to offer this business. And he's just been so hampered and so hindered by injuries that I think it's just not allowing him to give the fans what they can see in a final run. Obviously, if Rey Mysterio was said that he was retiring in a year, it would probably be the best Rey Mysterio we saw before he retired. But I think 
he feels he can still go. And obviously, as a fan, I can't say, you know, Ray, you can't fucking wrestle anymore. You're out of shape, blah, blah, blah. But the fact is that in Ray's case, he has a lot to offer a lot of these high-flying guys. I think him, Sin Cara, uh, the newly signed El Generico, Daniel Bryan, uh, Evan Bourne when he comes back from injury. You can even use Christian. A lot of these guys, a lot of these smaller, more cruiserweight-friendly athletes have more to offer. And I think Rey Mysterio is the guy that he can work behind the scenes and help these guys adapt. I mean, that's one thing that I've always said was Sin Cara's downfall was the fact that he was called up without being given a chance to season himself in developmental, and he's pretty much learning on the fly, and obviously it's been a recipe for a disaster. I think him and Ray working together has helped him, but Ray still has a lot to offer this business. It's just unfortunate that he was the uh, the fodder for a returning Mark Henry who pretty much murder death killed Ray Mysterio. So there you have it. Nice to see Mark Henry back. Obviously... It's good for him to be back because it adds another heel into a, a, a kind of thin heel side on the SmackDown bro, on the SmackDown brand. But I've I did say that there's a great opportunity here for a guy like Mark Henry, and I'll tell you I'll tell you guys why. Think about this: we all hate the the John Cena spinning belt. We all hate it. We all think that it's dated. It looks stupid now, etc., etc., etc. Imagine rocks out cutting a promo, blah blah blah. Mark Henry comes out, whoops the Rock's ass, and destroys the belt. Imagine that. He is the world's strongest man. You can look up video of him on, on WWE.com where he actually rolled up a frying pan. And you can see that. Now imagine, obviously you'd probably use a dummy belt. But imagine that. Mark Henry comes out, world's strongest man. He goes, you know, you, have, you, you, have, you don't have a real athlete as a champion. You have a you have an actor as a champion, and this and and this actor has a prop, and then he just says, you know, what happens to props? They're made to be broken, and boom, you just tear the belt. People would people would lose their shit, and it would be a great way to get Mark Henry thrust back into that scene, and it would also be a gateway to allow WWE to put a new belt out there. Because seriously, that belt, that belt at this point looks incredibly dated and incredibly cheesy. And it would just be fantastic to see if they did that. Just just him just just rip the belt in half and and you know leave the rock laying there. Obviously, people are gonna be like, Yeah, well, you can't set up a feud with the rock right now because of X. You know what? The rock got attacked by the shield and he hasn't even acknowledged them. And that's a, a break in continuity. So Mark Henry coming out and destroying the belt and and Vince pre- presenting the rock or Triple H presenting the rock with a new belt, whatever, would be good. And then you can set up Mark Henry to feud with somebody else just off the premise that he's like, hey, man, you know, you come out here, you tear up the championship because you want to make a statement, blah, blah, blah. And that can set up a feud for Mark Henry, thus still allowing The Rock to focus on his feud. But you leave that door open to, to address it down the road. I don't know, man. I think it would work. Sheamus took on Kane in a, in a fairly passable match. Wade Barrett did the job. To Randy Orton, back and forth these guys, which, you know, you you can say, damn, we see this match every week. I'm not disagreeing. The WWE active match with CM Punk and Chris Jericho was awesome. Awesome from start to finish. I really, really enjoyed it. I think these guys 
still have the chance to tear down the house in any pay-per-view setting because they just work so well together. Of course, the big thing out of Raw was the big announcement of Bruno Sammartino going into the WWE Hall of Fame, which I think is not only good for Sammartino, but it's also a validation to the Hall of Fame for WWE. Obviously, Bruno Sammartino's the guy. He's he's the man. He was the guy that, that wild crowd wild crowds at Madison Square Garden. He was the guy that was, you know, one one of their your signature champions, a guy that when you think old school WWE, Bruno's one of those guys. Because honestly, I've seen Bruno San Martino matches and that guy, he sure it's old school and and people are gonna have their their issues with it. But I honestly think that at the time it really delivered some great moments for classic wrestling. Bruno San Martino was part of that. He was up right up there with the Hogans, the Savage, who needs to be in the Hall of Fame. Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, um, you know, the fabulous Freebirds. I can go down a list of classic guys that some are in the Hall of Fame, some should be, that really, really help shape the era of wrestling as we know it. And to see San Martino go in there, like I said, it validates everything. And it was a lot of work. They say Triple H did a lot of work to set it up. And, you know, San Martino wasn't happy with the product and, you know, the drugs and all the stuff. And to really go to such great lengths to get him in there, it does validate this business. Him, classic, classic wrestling guys like Bob Backlund, seeing those guys get the kudos and the honors that they deserve, it, it's real nice. And I commend WWE for making it happen. Now, the the crazy thing... We got, obviously, they're really, really going out of their way to set up the Shield with um, Cena, Ryback, and Sheamus. I'm sure we're going to see that match at the Chamber. Uh, I honestly thought that Maddox was going to call the Shield out. Cena and those guys were going to come out and save him, and Maddox would be part of the Shield and attack Cena and those guys. I swore it was going to happen because it, it, it really they really pushed it in that direction. So to see that go down the way it did... I was I was impressed that Brad Maddox took the ass whooping and that we got to see it. And I also like the nice touch of Cena, Ryback, and Sheamus just coming through the crowd. Nice little touch, nice little nice little subtle jab at the shield. It was it was a good way to end it. It was not a terrible episode of Raw, I have to admit. I was thoroughly entertained. We had some good wrestling with solid breaks in between of good angle advancement and plot development, plus the addition of Sam Martino to the Hall of Fame kind of closed out a solid episode of Monday Night Raw. Now, let's get into some of the other wrestling news. Um, one of the things that's been making the rounds this week is a video that Bret Hart, an interview that Bret Hart did where he pretty much felt that Triple H was overhyped. Pretty much. And I, and I want to share some of these comments that he had that he made. He said, I have a certain amount of respect for Triple H. I remember when he first came in. I remember commenting on the stuff that he did because I'd usually give wrestlers my thoughts and try to help them on stuff. Triple H has always been a good wrestler, but great? What is he now? A 1,000-time world champion? How, how great really is he? Bret Hart went on to say, I look at CM Punk, I can look at certain wrestlers and I go, this guy is an innovator, like a Rey Mysterio who's done stuff that no one has ever thought of before. Punk has done stuff, really unique moves, and you go, gee, I've never seen anything like that before. They innovate all the time, and they create new sequences and moves and other things. Then you look at someone like Triple H. When I look at him, he's always, he's always had a good look as far as his body went. 
He's always had a pretty muscular physique, but look, you look at someone like Hunter and you wonder, what has he really done? One move that he ever created that nobody ever saw before or some high spot or some idea for a match. He's mostly a guy that just showed up and they made him. He's always been a decent wrestler. I would consider him a good wrestler and a pretty talented wrestler, but great? I don't know. I don't think so. Bret Hart went on to say this. What has he ever done that's great? He's never had a great match, I don't think, ever. Whenever I look at Triple H's matches, including the last one he had with The Undertaker, and I don't really mean it as a knock, but I told myself before I watched it because I'm trying to like Paul now these days, that I want to see him do something to make me think he's got greatness in him. Which, I'll share my thoughts after. He, he also said, before Triple H wrestled Undertaker last year, I remember watching it and going, I can picture the whole match in my head and I can tell you exactly what this match is going to be like and how it's going to go. And I remember watching it and it went exactly how I predicted it. I thought it was mediocre at best, maybe a 4 out of 10, 3 out of 10. I think Paul is a little overrated, overrated for being great. I can sit here and tell you that there was one match that he ever had with anybody that I thought was great. It's kind of a shame. He should have a great match somewhere. Now, I'm going to share this and I'm going to poll this on our Facebook fan page to see what you guys think, but I'll be 100% honest in looking at it. The contrast in wrestling styles from a Bret Hart to a Triple H have changed dramatically. Have I always thought Triple H was a great wrestler myself? No. He was good, and he was a, but he was a great entertainer. He went above and beyond to tell the story with other elements. Same thing with The Rock. The Rock is a fantastic, tremendous entertainer. But if you look at The Rock strictly from a wrestling standpoint, and I said this when we were watching the Rumble myself, uh, Josh Coleman, Andrew Zarian, and the rest of the GFQ crew, when we were watching that match, you know, one of the guys was a Rock fan, and he goes, he goes, what, you don't, he goes, you don't like The Rock? And I'm like, no, I love The Rock. I think The Rock is a tremendous entertainer. The guy was a, was a part of my childhood. I remember watching all his matches growing up, talking about him at school, you know, all the stuff we talked about with regards to that. But growing up now, I look at wrestling a little different. You know, I, I look at it a little different because what you see there is you see a man who is a tremendous entertainer, but a decent wrestler. Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. But the problem with that is that when you're a decent wrestler and you strip away the theatrics, there's no, there is no great match there. The Rock has had excellent feuds, but they're, they're an element of theatricality and then wrestling and it's also dependent on his opponents because i remember when the rock was feuding with chris benoit benoit made the rock look really good in his matches really good versus when the rock feuded with stone cold it was a 50 50 but stone cold definitely shared the bigger burden from a wrestling standpoint triple h is kind of in the same ballpark i honestly think and people will always disagree that triple h was made by his feud and his matches with Mick Foley. Mick Foley made Triple H. Because the matches they had had great storytelling. And not only that, but the wrestling, sure. You may say it was it was alright. But it was the storytelling that made that feud great. Now Triple H has a tremendous wrestling mind. He's a great uh, wrestling purist. 
Like, you look at the stuff he's doing in NXT, and Josh Coleman brought it up in the Mixler chat. It's true, the NXT product is probably the best product that reminds me of, you know, the SmackDown 6 when Heyman was running SmackDown. You have great stories, but you also have the that one intangible that people seem to forget when they talk about these guys, and that, ladies and gentlemen, is wrestling. Wrestling comes front and center to me. Yeah, I like to be entertained, but I also like wrestling. That's why I watch it. That's why when I tell people that Chris Benoit is still one of my favorite wrestlers, they stand there, you know, mouth agape, like, are you fucking serious? And I got to tell them, I'm a fan of Chris Benoit, the wrestler. The guy that went out there and had five-star classics with, a, with Kurt Angle. The guy that went out there and, and did his thing. You know? It's, it's not a question of, of admiring a guy's theatrical work. It's a matter of, a, of liking a, a, a wrestler's wrestling. That's how it is. Slick says, Rock's single greatest in-ring moment is the power slide people's elbow, and that was theatrics. It's true. The Rock, it, again, a great showman, a tremendous performer. But strip that away. Strip it away and watch his match just for wrestling. It's punch, kick. I can call his spots. I can understand what Bret Hart says. Same thing with a John Cena match. You can call the spots. John Cena is starting to step out a little bit, try some different things, the occasional drop kick, a uh, little top rope maneuver. But again, you look at a guy like CM Punk, you know, you see an Anaconda Vice, maybe you see a Moonsault, Randy Savage Elbow, Running Bulldog. You see just a different elements to his offense. Same thing with a, with a, with a younger Chris Jericho. You, you'd see a little bit of cruiserweight, but you'd see some submission stuff. How it is, Daniel Bryan, same way. I understand where Bret Hart is coming from, but a lot of people are going to try and spin this into him shitting on Triple H, and he's not shitting on him in the way that you would think. He's just saying, like, yo, the dude never had that moment of greatness. Yeah, he was a champion, and he's had stuff, but he hasn't had that, that moment that people will speak about forever. Yeah. Oh yeah, Slick Slick brought to my attention. I I didn't even notice that. CM Punk uh, did the Mr. Perfect. He tried to do the Mr. Perfect uh, gum swat. I missed that. I gotta rewatch Raw. Thanks, Slick. I'm gonna check that out after after we wrap up. But it's true. I think um, when you look at that Triple H, great performer, solid solid wrestler, great. Great is open to interpretation. Anyway. Switching gears, got to go into TNA Impact a little bit. TNA Impact is leaving the Impact Zone. From now on, the final two shows are going to be filmed at the Impact Zone, February 28th and March 7th. Then they're taking TNA on the road, getting out of the Impact Zone, which I think is tremendous, and it's going to do the promotion a lot of good because you're going to get out there, get this talent out there in front of real audiences, real wrestling fans, and not just people that bought a ticket and got out of the Shrek ride and have indigestion and want to sit down and rest for a little bit. I'm talking about people that are real wrestling fans that are paying real money to watch real wrestling. You know, it's like the funny thing about the Impact Zone crowd is they come in, you got your regulars in there, but a lot of them are just guys that are wandering in there that bought a ticket. And they're like, ah, we'll go watch some wrestling because they give wrestling here. It's not the same. You compare a crowd at an impact zone to say a crowd at the Hammerstein or a crowd at the um, at Westbury Music Fair or a crowd at Nassau Coliseum, you'll see that it's a different vibe, a different energy because you're getting 
knowledgeable fans that know the product, but you're also getting fans that can really, really just augment the atmosphere and make it, make it look bigger. Think about when you see TNA in the UK, and the UK goes crazy for these guys. That's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that type of an intangible. TNA needs that. Leaving the impact zone is tremendous, and I'm glad they're doing it. TNA is short one roster member. I got to talk about that. Kid Cash confirmed his departure on Twitter after previously denying it. He said, as of today, I'm no longer with TNA Wrestling, and I'm available for all worldwide bookings. I'm actually very sad to see Cash leave TNA because, like I said, he's a well-established hand. I've said it on numerous episodes, and he adds a little bit of that veteran uh, knowledge to the X Division. I think he's a guy that would be a great heel, a tremendous staple to that division. He has an MMA background. He can do you know ground-and-pound physical style, but he can still hang with the cruiserweights, and I think that that's something that is gonna is, is really, really lacking in the X Division, especially when a guy like Samoa Joe is being squandered mercilessly. He's a guy that, you know, he could carry that division. If you're not going to put him in the main event, let him build up that X division credibility. Bring that up because he's a tremendous asset. Once again, they're just they're just weeding it out and they're making it not a glorified spot division, but there's no clear-cut veteran leader in that division because not even Daniels and Kazarian touch that division or AJ. So that's a factor that that really, in my opinion, has brought down the X Division. One of the best parts of Zack Ryder's show is the Big O. I have to admit, the Big O is hilarious. He is, if you've seen Z the Long Island Story and you've seen the Big O, you know that he is a, a crazy, unique individual. And honestly, I always thought that he'd be a guy that would get the call up to the WWE. He has that look, you know, the jacked, crazy meathead look. Turns out that's not the case. The Big O actually got a TNA tryout. He did a gut check tryout in Fayetteville, North Carolina, and um, you know he he actually did an interview with the Fayetteville Observer, and he said you ha- you got to have good basics, a good foundation. You definitely want to show off what you can do, but for me, it's always about safety first. And once you learn that trust between you and your opponent, you can cut loose a bit more. Honestly, I thought the Big O would have done good in the WWE, and it probably if you would have paired him with Zack Ryder, it would have been tremendous. Honestly, at this point, if the Big O goes to TNA and they cut Ryder, Ryder should go to TNA because they would put them, put the Big O, Zack Ryder, Robbie E, and Robbie T together in a fucking stable. It would be ridiculousness and comedy gold. Plus, you bring back the YouTube, you let Zack Ryder run with the ball, let him get creative. I think it would work. What's he going to do in the WWE? Get jobbed out every week? Come on. Seriously. Send Ryder, Big O, TNA, put them with Robbie E and Robbie T, call them like the Jersey Boys or or something like that, or the, you know, the party guys or some crazy shit, throw the funny sweaters on them, you know, use the woo-woo-woo because unless Vince uh, patented that too, you can have a little fun with that. And Zack Ryder, honestly, if he went and he got released by the WWE and went to TNA and told his Twitter followers, I'm going to go to, you know, I'm going to go to... TNA and I'm going to call myself, I don't know, uh, you know, Brad Ryder or something, whatever the case is, John Ryder, anything, I guarantee you that they will follow him to TNA. They will follow him in droves because Zack Ryder succeeded in getting over by being Zack Ryder. It wasn't the WWE hype machine. It wasn't any of that shit. It was a guy who was 
frustrated with his position, had a camera, and knew how to use social media. And it's a travesty that he continues to be misused, and he's not the guy that they talk about when social media is brought up. Because the WWE wasn't even entertaining YouTube at the time until Zack Ryder started making that pop off. On the contrary, you used to put up a piece of WWE footage on YouTube, they would go out of their way to take that shit down immediately. I remember guys would put the the video backwards just to you know to invert the picture so that they wouldn't get their stuff taken down. Now all of a sudden you guys are this social media juggernaut. Honestly, Zack Ryder was a motivating force behind that. And the fact that he just gets jobbed out is 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 a tragedy all its own. Anyway, as I said, you know, Bruno going into the Hall of Fame joins Backlund, Mick Foley, and Trish Stratus. So there you have it. Who else is going to get announced? I don't know. We still got a couple of weeks before Mania, but it's a solid lineup so far. It's going to be right here in New York City at Madison Square Garden. I think it's going to be a tremendous show. I didn't buy tickets because, holy shit, they're an arm and a leg, and I'm a sucker, and I want to buy Nice front row seats to experience it the way it's meant to be experienced. What do you expect? I'm spoiled. I've gone to see TNA and I've sat really close to the ring and it was a completely different experience than being in the upper deck and it fucking spoiled me. Sue me. I'm sorry. (laughs) Anyway, that's going to wrap up the wrestling segment for this week. Let's get into some video games because we got much to discuss. As I mentioned at the start of this week's uh, this week's broadcast, you know, Hip Hop Gamer is the new ambassador for the ECA. Congrats to him, and we'll be talking with him on the 21st. So, figured I'd share that little bit of uh, of a tidbit if you guys are just tuning in for our gaming segment. All right, well, I got to talk about this Skyrim situation because I know a couple of people got Skyrim on the PS3, and they were very very pissed that they couldn't get in on the DLC release for the Xbox 360 that so many of you guys are enjoying. Um, honestly, the crazy thing with that is that Xbox 360 gamers have been just abusing the shit out of all the DLC, but fret not PS3 owners for redemption is coming your way. Digital Spy reported that the Dragonborn DLC will be available on the console on February 12th with Hearthfire available February 19th, and Dawn Guard available the following week. The expansions are going to be available for half price for their, respect, for their respective launch weeks. The Dragonborn DLC will follow a 1.8 update to the game, which obviously is going to make improvements to memory and stability, plus it'll have some bug fixes as well. Now, while we're on the subject of Sony, obviously the, the gaming community... Uh, gaming journalists have the proverbial chubby, the stiffy in their pants, because they're expecting the PlayStation 4 to be announced on the 20th. And don't get me wrong, I'm pumped, I'm pumped for it, I am. Am I walking around with a raging heart on about it? No, and I'll tell you why. Because think about this. We're just We're just scratching the surface of the PS3. We're starting to get good titles on a consistent basis, which was something that really eluded the system at the beginning. And that's something that's really making a case for themselves. We got a nice God of War on the horizon. We got some good stuff from PS Plus, getting a lot of great games for free. Nice little addition to the service. Sony's starting to hit their stride. Okay, great. Now, 
Fast forward, boom, February 20th comes out. Hey, we're going to drop this PS4 and it's going to have, you know, Skynet encryption technology. It's going to transform into a Terminator. It's going to walk you to school. It's going to wipe your ass. Oh, it's going to have, you know, virtual reality goggles that are going to allow you to be inside the matrix of the PlayStation universe. Blah, 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 blah. You know, horse shit. The fact remains that you can announce the PlayStation 4 on February 20th. And that's great. Congratulations. But the announcement will mean nothing. And I say this all the time. The announcement means nothing. If when you drop the system and somebody pays $400, $450, and you only have three good games worth buying, it won't mean shit. I hate everybody, you know, walking around. Oh, my God. It's good. Look, check this out. When the announcement gets made on the 20th, they're going to be like, yeah, you know, there's the system. It's going to do this. It's going to transform. It's got Autobot Decepticon technology. It comes with a laser beak controller that transforms into a into a headset that you can wear. Of your, whatever, whatever the case is. And I'm just being foolish with that type of a description. But seriously, it's great. And it's and it's great for Sony. But what good will it be if they don't give us games? I'm not knocking the system. Don't don't get me wrong. Before anybody goes, oh, Rich hates everything. No, I'm excited because it allows it allows these companies to step their game up. Sony dropping the hammer on the 20th is going to tell Microsoft, get your shit together because your reign at the top is is at an end if you don't step your game up. And it's true. If Sony comes out with incredible technology, incredible hardware, and adds some functionality that the Xbox 360 still hasn't grasped and hasn't even been thought of for the new system, it's it's crazy. But, again, games are the motivating factor. I'm not going to buy a $400 system to have it be a paperweight for six months. I'm sorry. That's not how it works. Am I excited? Absolutely. As a gamer, I'm excited. As a technology aficionado, I am excited. As a, as, as a geek, I am excited. What I'm not excited about is the beauty of all this hardware... And maybe one or two titles, and then a drought, and then more good titles. Obviously, if they say, yeah, you know, you could play all your PS3 stuff on it. All right, great, fine. But what good is that going to do? If you don't have systems, maxi- if you don't have games maximizing whatever new hardware or technology, you're going pr- to shove down our throats on the 20th. That's how I feel. Again, the 20th will be here before you know it, and we'll we'll break it down on the 21st, but... I'm excited, but I'm not. And and wait till I tell you guys what's what's being said about the 360. You guys are going to lose your minds. Anyway, with regards to the 360, there's two pieces of news that came out this week. First one came out of Edge Online that said that the new Xbox console is going to require constant internet connection. Isn't that the same for anything else? but that the system is going to block the use of second-hand games. It is believed that all games will ship on 50-gig Blu-ray discs and will come with a one-time activation code. The report also says that the game will feature an AMD 8-core 1.6 GHz GPU and a D3D11 by 800 MHz graphics solution and 8 gigs of DDR3 RAM. The size of the hard drive is not obviously mentioned, and the new system right now is in beta stage with a shipment of brand new prototype kits making their way to developers. Now, of course, in addition to that, there's alleged 
patent filings, which will feature an improved Kinect device, as well as two CPUs, one for gaming and one for multimedia applications. It's rumored that the launch is going to happen during the 2013 holiday season and will also feature, obviously, the Kinect 2.0, 3D technology, and the Xbox television. Now, here's what I got to say with regards to that. By you telling people right now that they can't play used games, you're shooting yourselves in the foot. Now, I understand developers don't make money on used games and you're tired of GameStop just raping people's pockets and having tremendous gains year after year after year on the backs of developers. I get that. But you also have to take into consideration that not everybody has $60 to spend. I know kids that, that, that save every penny to buy one $60 game, but they'll buy a $20 game used that's been out for three or four months so that they can play it. I know kids. I know parents that do that. You know how many parents I know that'll say, hey, I'm not going to buy the game now for 60 bucks. I could buy it used on eBay for 25 or 30 in a couple of weeks. And, and my kid will still get to enjoy the game. And I understand that. To, to, to eliminate secondhand games is, is a problem because you're going to eliminate a market of people that really need to use that type of a medium. You know, low-income families, you know, people that they have a system for their kid and maybe they can afford to buy the occasional $10 or $15 game. What does that say for companies like Gamefly that rent out games that for all intents and purposes are secondhand to each person that gets them? Gamefly is not going to send out a new game every time. As a matter of fact, I rented uh, uh, Tom Clancy's Ghost Recon Future Soldier, which I actually captured game footage. You guys can check it out on my take radio TV on YouTube. And one of the things I did I, you know, I'm not a big first person shooter guy. I like to play them, but I don't go online to get shot at all the time. I like to play the campaigns and appreciate that. But the first thing I did when I put the game in, it said, Hey, do you have a Uplay account? I'm like, no, I'm like, well, it said, please enter your Uplay account or please enter your information to get all the multiplayer functionality. Since I didn't want that and I just wanted to play the campaign I didn't go and buy the the multiplayer stuff because I didn't need it. And that's what I'm saying. I think that that outlet is better because somebody's still making the money. If I buy a used Call of Duty game and I decide I want to go online and you tell me, hey, you know, you got to pay 10 bucks. Think about it. You paid 20 bucks for the game or 30 bucks for the game. Even if with the $10, it gives you a game for 40 bucks. It's still better than 60 new and you get to go online. I think by just cannibalizing and destroying that, you're, you're, you're really telling poor families, low-income families, that we don't want your money, that your money's not good enough, that you, you don't matter. And on the contrary, as long as I have dead presidents in my pocket and they're green, I don't give a shit. My skin is brown, my ass is brown, my money is green. And that's what I'm saying. That's the shit that kills me. Oh, we're going to block the use of secondhand games. Oh, that's fine. But you know what? For those low-income families who, who you know, they, they, they scrimp and save to buy their kid a system, a product that you're promoting, and they're going to buy those games, you're eliminating them. You're telling them, we don't want your money. Your money's not good enough. And that shit bothers me. As a gamer and as a man with a family, as a person that works, it bothers me. 
Because occasionally it's true. I don't have 60 bucks to shell out. So occasionally I do buy the used games. Occasionally I do partake in the game fly. Simple as that. If I had to lay out $60 for every game I wanted, I guarantee you I probably wouldn't be able to pay my mortgage or my light or anything that's important because of my hobby and my interest. And I, and I love gaming. I do. And I go about, I go about it in a, in a smart, economical way. When I really, really want a game and I don't give a shit, I'll treat myself. Boom, here's the $60. Maybe I'll wait down the road because the game, it's on my radar, but not enough for me to drop 60 Maybe I'll wait for it to be on sale. I'll buy it then. Worst case, Gamefly. Why? Because it's good enough for me to rent, but it's not good enough for me to buy. Simple as that. It's ridiculous. If that rumor is true, Microsoft is shooting themselves in the foot. Simple as that. Last bit of gaming news to close things out. Ubisoft announced that it had a tremendous third quarter, which ended December 31st, 2012. Sales ended at $1.7 billion. That's a 23% increase from last year. Sales for the year topped out at $1.4 billion. That's an increase of 21%. Obviously, this was pushed by Assassin's Creed 3, which shipped 12 million units, and Far Cry 3, which has shipped 4.5 million units thus far. In addition to that, obviously, the Tyranny of King Washington DLC for AC3, which is dropping February 19th, March 19th, and April 23rd. Those are all three episodes. Are going to definitely add to that. Also... It's been mentioned that in the financials for 2014, we're going to be seeing a brand new Assassin's Creed with a brand new Assassin's Creed hero, an all new team and an all new time period. According to what they're saying, they expect it to be another major leap forward for the franchise. So there you have it. Assassin's Creed becoming a modern day call of duty by giving us a game practically every year. I don't mind. I really have gotten sucked in with the Assassin's Creed stories and I enjoy them all. I was a little disheartened by the latest Assassin's Creed 3. You guys can read the review on MyTakeRadio.com. Primarily just because of Desmond's ending, not because of uh, Connor's ending, which was awesome. I think, um, wow, there's a lot of ums there. I apologize. <laughs> I honestly feel that Desmond's ending could have been better. That's all I'm saying. All right. Before we get into this week's entertainment segment, I'd like to remind everybody it is 1.57 a.m. Eastern Standard Time right now. MTR will go off the air on Blog Talk Radio at 2 a.m. If you want to continue listening to the show, please make sure to stop by our Facebook fan page and click the Mixler tab. And you can listen to the show via Mixler in 96K stereo as we go into overtime. Again, I will give that reminder again shortly before the English woman yells in my ear and you guys hear it in the Mixler side. But again, the live show will end at 2 a.m. Eastern. All right, let's get into this week's entertainment segment. And there's nobody better to take it away than this guy. I love that Scott Pilgrim intro so much for so many reasons. Obviously, as a gamer, I appreciated it. Scott Pilgrim was also just an awesome movie. So it's fitting that it's a little bit of gaming, but just the right touch for our entertainment segment. 
Anyway, let's let's start things off with uh, Mark Wahlberg from Boston, who um, went on MTV News to talk about the upcoming Entourage movie. Yes, Entourage is going from the small screen to the big screen because, you know, everybody wants to know what happened to Turtle and that stupid guy with the curly hair, Vince, and all of them. So, yeah, Mark Wahlberg is going to bring that to the big screen. Uh, they're looking to start shooting it this spring or summer with a release hopefully next spring or summer. So there you have it. An Entourage movie is happening. So for those of you that are diehard fans of the show, I'm sure you're excited. Me personally, I always had a love-hate relationship with Entourage, and I was always just a big fan of Ari. Simple as that. So Entourage movie. Be on the lookout for it because it is coming. Uh, Did the English lady yell in my ear? I don't think she did. It says uh, 30 seconds. All right. Quick reminder, you can listen to the rest of the show via the Mixler feed. This will be the last reminder before 2 a.m. Otherwise, catch the show on iTunes. For those of you that were tuning out after this, thank you guys for listening to this week's episode. Catch you guys on the archives. Anyway, Mark Millar recently spoke about Kick-Ass 3, said that the third film will be the end of the series. Mind you, Kick-Ass 2 isn't even out yet. He said the following, Kick-Ass 3 is going to be the last one. I told Universal this, and they asked me, what does that mean? I said, it means that this is where it all ends. (laughs) They responded with, do they all die at the end? I said, maybe, because this is a realistic superhero story. And if someone doesn't have a bulletproof vest, or doesn't have Batman's millions, or Superman's uh, invincibility, eventually, it's going to turn around, and the wrong thing's going to happen. So Kick-Ass needs to reflect that. There has to be something dramatic at the end. He cannot do this for the rest of his life. I applaud that. I think that's a really, really cool concept. He's not being greedy. He's not looking to go the extra step. It's just, hey, this is the end of the series. Take it for what it's worth. And that's that. I have no problem with that. A bit of news that came up on my radar that I was super excited about from coming soon is that uh, PT Marantu Films and XYZ Films have announced that they're doing a sequel to The Raid which super pumped for super pumped uh part two is going to pick up right where the first film ends it's going to follow rama as he goes undercover and infiltrates the ranks of a ruthless jakarta crime syndicate in order to protect his family and uncover corruption within his police force i gotta tell you guys if you have not seen the raid and you're a fan of action or martial arts films you're doing yourself an incredible disservice the raid is insane from start to finish, kick-ass violence, excellent fight choreography. It is a it is a, a mile a minute of adrenaline. It is it is ridiculous. If you want even further proof of that, do yourselves a favor. Just hit the search button on mytakeradio.com. Check out Slick's review of the raid, and you can see for yourselves. If not, do yourselves a favor, pick it up, rent it, whatever you got to do, and check it out because it is insane. In some Marvel movie news, obviously, we've been talking about Captain America and the Winter Soldier at length on MTR. We talked about some of the casting, um, some of the women that they were rumored to have cast for the role, some of the women that read for the role. Turns out that all of the women that we talked about that may have possibly been in the lead, none of them got cast. Get this, Deadline reports that Emily Van Camp, who some of you may know as either Emily Thorne or Amanda Clark from ABC's Revenge, has actually joined the cast. She was not among the list of actresses I talked about in previous episodes. 
while they haven't confirmed who she's going to play, all signs point to her playing Sharon Carter, which is, of course, the niece of Peggy Carter from Captain America, the first Avenger. Sharon Carter also becomes a love interest for Captain America in the comics. She joins, of course, Chris Evans, Sebastian Stan, who will be playing uh, Bucky and the Winter Soldier, Anthony Mackie, who's playing Falcon, Frank Grillo, who's playing Crossbones, which I'm really excited for, Sam Jackson, Kobe Smulders, and Scarlett Johansson are all going to be popping up in Captain America. The release date for that is April 4th, 2014. I'd say I think it was five episodes back. I was talking about a, a sequel to Roger Rabbit. And I was really excited for it because Roger Rabbit's one of my favorite films. It turns out that Roger Rabbit, that sequel that they were all planning on, is not going to happen. Robert Zemeckis said in an interview that was posted via Empire Online that there have been a lot of changes at the Disney studio, and I don't think it's on the cards. I don't think it's going to happen. I'm a little bummed out. I really liked Roger Rabbit. It's it's a staple. It's, It's a movie that pretty much is tied into my childhood. I saw it multiple times as a kid i still watch it every time it's on as an adult everybody in my family enjoys it i remember going to see it with my brother and um buying a bendy roger rabbit which i actually had with me often everywhere i went when i was a kid i think it's it may be buried in my garage somewhere so i'm a little bummed that it's not gonna happen but you know what maybe it's for the better because i don't think that audiences are ready for some of the subject matter in roger rabbit that was you know it was a little it was a little touch and go here and there, especially with uh, Jessica Rabbit for obvious reasons. But who knows? Maybe we'll be graced with a sequel at some point. Let's talk box office totals in a shocking, shocking twist. Warm Bodies was number one, 20 million dollars. But then again, it's competing against such gems as Hensel and Gretel Witch Hunters. Uh, so take that for what it's worth. 20 million dollars for Warm Bodies. Hansel and Gretel Witch Hunters, 9.2 million. Silver Linings Playbook, 8.1 at the number three spot. Mama, $6.7 million, 58.3 million total at the number four spot. Zero Dark 30 was number five. Bullet to the Head was number six. Parker was number seven. Django Unchained was number eight. Les Miserables was nine. And Lincoln closed things out at 10. Lincoln has taken in already $170 million. Now, I'm really, really excited to talk about this bit of news here because I, I read Latino film review or Latino review as it's known in most circles. I like to call it Latino film review. It's a force of habit. Why? I don't know. But one of the things that these guys do at this site that's so great is that they break some really awesome stories and they really do dig deep to give us really, really great details. Now, they recently shared some rumors regarding Hulk movies and the Avengers 2 and 3. And I want to share these with you guys because if they go this route, it's going to be insane. It really is going to be insane. and It's going to require a lot of work. As of right now, all signs point to, based on the rumors, towards at the end of Avengers 2, the Hulk is going to be shipped off of Earth by Marvel's Illuminati, which is going to be made up of Obviously, Doctor Strange, Black Bolt, Charles Xavier, and Reed Richards, Namor, and Iron Man, which make up the Illuminati in the books. Whether we're going to see all of them or not remains to be seen, but let's take into consideration. Iron Man, we've seen him on film. Reed Richards has been seen on film. Doctor Strange has a film in the works. Black Bolt, we may see in Guardians of the Galaxy. And Namor, we may still see. Now, the only issue with this is is that the film rights for Charles Xavier and Reed Richards are not 
uh, Marvel does not hold those film rights. So I don't know how they're going to pull that off, but who knows? Maybe a couple of dollars here or there may make that happen. Anyway, the plan is for the Hulk to come back in Avengers 3, and Avengers 3 would be a live-action version of World War Hulk. Tell me that wouldn't be some amazing shit. World War Hulk? Live-action? With the cast that we got now? Oh, man, it's insane. Now, don't get me wrong. World War Hulk is a very, very involved and intricate storyline. But obviously, they're going to strip a lot of that away and give us just the meat and potatoes of the story, which is pretty much Hulk shipped off to space, Hulk being treated as a slave, Hulk smashing at the planet that he's at, coming back with a force of fellow slaves and whooping ass in the Marvel Universe. Hulk is going to come back extremely pissed off, and it's going to be amazing to see that on film if it goes down, which if it is, I'm you have no idea how pumped I am. And if you guys haven't read World War Hulk and Planet Hulk, please, I'm begging you. I'm begging you. The amount of awesome storytelling in that, in that storyline is, is beyond measure. Because it really gave us a different side to the Hulk. And it also opened up so many other avenues for the Hulk. I'm not going to spoil it. But there's so many great things that go down. And so many characters that are, are woven into the story in ways that, that really surprise me. I'm so pumped for it if this is how it's going to go down. But all signs are pointing to that based on the rumors from Latino Review. While we are on the subject of Marvel movies and we've been talking about Guardians of the Galaxy and um, Josh Coleman is uh, leaving Mixler. Good night, Josh. Thank you for tuning in. Make sure to catch Josh Coleman on the T4 show with uh, Michael Manna, who's been on the MTR behind the mic interview series. For those of you that don't know, Michael Mana also works as a professional wrestler Stevie Richards. But the T4 show is tech, gaming, it's awesome stuff. Make sure to check those guys out. Anyway, back to the Marvel news as I was saying. Really, really pumped for this. They, we've been talking about all these different names being cast for Star-Lord and Guardians of the Galaxy. It seems that they're going to go with Chris Pratt, who right now is is everywhere due to his work in Zero Dark Thirty. He was also in Moneyball and the five-year engagement. Well, Chris Pratt will be playing Star-Lord in Guardians of the Galaxy. So there you have it. Got to talk a little Star Wars this week. We got a lot of stuff to discuss. Uh, Disney CEO Bob Eager was talking about, obviously, a brand new trilogy of Star Wars films, but there's also going to be some single independent films that are going to be released within the Star Wars time period, uh, such things as a uh, Boba Fett movie, and also a young Han Solo. The Boba Fett movie would take place between Episode 4 and Episode 5. Obviously, New Hope and Empire Strikes Back. And um, the Han Solo film would take place before A New Hope. And would obviously, you're, you're going to need a new guy to play Han Solo. Um, and it's going to expand on his story. In the Star Wars Expanded Universe, Han Solo was orphaned at a young age and trained by the pirate Garrus Shriek before escaping in his teens. He then obviously became a smuggler, had a relationship with a woman who left him to be part of the Rebel Alliance. He then joined the Imperial Academy, but was kicked out after saving Chewbacca from a beating at the hands of an Imperial officer. I think that's going to be an awesome story if done right. Now, the big question is, who would you cast as a young Han Solo? That's another question I'm going to pose. Maybe I'll pose that on the fan page uh, sometime tomorrow to kind of see what you guys got to say. But a young Han Solo... I don't know. It definitely might work. Um, 
I like what they're doing. I think Disney has a solid game plan. Just keeping the Star Wars name out there. The problem is that there is always the possibility of oversaturation, which may hurt the franchise down the road. But we shall see how it pans out. Two bits of what the fuck movie news this week. First up, we all know Agent 47, right? Bald guy, barcode on the back of his head, uh, is known for all the great Hitman games, but also for the movie with Timothy Oliphant, who played Hitman and who you guys may know from Live Free or Die Hard or Justified. Anyway, it seems that we are looking to bring the Hitman franchise back to the big screen. Hollywood is fast-tracking it with, get this, Paul Walker as Agent 47. I shared this on the fan page. The reboot is being written by Skip Woods and Mike Finch. Um, Production for the film begins in June. And, of course... Before anybody gets in an uproar, yes, Paul Walker will shave his head for the role. I don't know if the surfer dude facial expressions of Paul Walker will will do justice to the steely, non-emotional gaze of Agent 47. Honestly, I think it's it's terrible, terrible casting. But, I mean, I wasn't sure about Timothy Oliphant at first, and, and he grew on me. So, who knows? We'll see if... If Paul Walker has any sort of acting range to make Agent 47 worth a second trip to the box office. Another bit of what the fuck movie news that I totally forgot about this is a Need for Speed movie, which I talked about and then I kind of forgot about it. But they have a pretty, pretty crazy cast of people involved. It seems that Michael Keaton is the newest addition to the cast. Michael Keaton will be playing the reclusive an eccentric host of an underground supercar race where he invites the best drivers from around the world. He joins Aaron Paul, Imogen Poots, Dominic Cooper, Ramon Rodriguez, Rami Malek, Harrison Gilbertson, and Kid Cootie. The film will be directed by Scott Wall with a, a rumored release date of February 7th, 2014. I was shocked to hear this, and I'm going to share this with you guys. Superhero Hype reported that Skyfall actually passed the Dark Knight Rises in worldwide box office totals. It makes the uh, newest James Bond film the seventh highest grossing film of all time. Skyfall has $1.9 billion to the Dark Knight Rises $1.8 billion. The film obviously got a huge increase from the Chinese box office where the film opened on January 21st. Now here's the crazy thing. The six films that earn more than Skyfall are the following. The Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Transformers Dark of the Moon. Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2. The Avengers. Titanic. And Avatar. Avatar still in the lead with $2.7 billion. Skyfall is now the highest grossing James Bond film of all time. Double the worldwide gross of Quantum of Solace, which kind of sucked. And it's going to be out on DVD and Blu-ray. February 12th, and of course, I will have a review for that shortly thereafter. Last bit of entertaining, uh, excuse me, entertainment news to tie things up is a picture I saw on Mark Webb's Twitter, which uh, has been making the rounds. A lot of people talking about it. Anyway, for those that don't know or just never cared to do the research, Mark Webb is the director of Amazing Spider-Man, currently working on Amazing Spider-Man 2. Anyway, he shared a photo of a metallic locker with the message happy birthday. The locker looks like it's in Oscorp Labs and it's similar 
to the lockers depicted in an Ultimate Spider-Man comic book by Brian Michael Bendis and Mark Bagley, which in that in that particular story, uh, teenage Peter Parker and teenage Eddie Brock discovered the Venom symbiote in that locker. Now, I don't know if they're going to go that route, but if you guys aren't familiar, in Ultimate Spider-Man, Venom was created as a science experiment by Richard Parker and Eddie Brock Sr. The experiment was never finished, and it was found by Peter Parker and Eddie Brock Jr. with the, uh, the substance, obviously, merging with Eddie Brock Jr., creating Venom. Now, the crazy thing is, is that what the, what, what the intention is? Is that where we're going? Who knows? But it's a nice... Uh, I have to commend Mark Webb for doing that because it gets people talking. It gets people interested. And I got to credit the guys at 411 Mania because they actually went and got the image from the comics to share that. So... It's going to be very, very, very interesting to see if that's the direction they go in. Nonetheless, I think it's a nice way to keep uh, interest high and people interested in The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which obviously Jamie Foxx as Electro. Uh, we don't know if we're going to see Paul Giamatti as the Rhino. May happen. Hasn't been confirmed yet. But once I hear, I will share it with you guys. Anyway. That's actually going to wrap up the show for this week. We went uh, about three hours and 15 minutes this week. So with that in mind, let's close up shop. You've just heard my take radio episode 172 for Thursday, February 7th, 2013. If you want to be a guest on a future episode of MTR or have any questions or concerns, feel free to drop me an email. MTRhost at mytakeradio.com. If you're interested in writing for us either on a permanent or guest posting basis, make sure to check out the tab on mytakeradio.com for write with us, write for us, or uh, guest posts. And you'll be able to submit that stuff there. And, of course, once we receive it, we'll be in touch and we'll try and finalize it or get some samples of your work. If you want to follow us on social media, you can look for me on Twitter at mytakeradio. We are on MySpace. I really should stop into the new MySpace and see how things look over there and maybe tweak that page a little bit. Last but not least, you can look for us on Facebook. Become a fan of our Facebook fan page, facebook.com forward slash MyTakeRadio. We post tons of stuff there, cosplay, videos, uh, comic books, you name it. Anything geek, pop culture, wrestling, MMA, you name it, we post it because that's the kind of show we are. Last but not least, you can ask us questions on Formspring if you choose, but more importantly, you can add us on your circles in Google+. If you want to take MTR to go, you can pick up the MTR app for Android or iOS devices. It is $1.99 for Android, available in the Amazon Android Marketplace, and of course, for iOS devices, iTunes is your source. Last but not least, you can always listen to MTR on Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, Zoom Marketplace, TuneIn Radio, and of course, iTunes. We'd really appreciate that if you are getting the shows off of iTunes, you take a moment, rate the show, give us a, a decent review, or not, depending, obviously no pressure, but let us know what you think helps us move up the rankings in iTunes, gets more people to tune in, gets more people to notice us, and of course, continues to spread MTR to the masses. With that, I'm out of here. Thanks to Gilbert Smith for tuning in and bearing with us during our technical difficulties. Obviously, um, our staff, Ben Slick, for helping us out this evening and keeping the show on a nice, even keel. Anyway, I'll catch you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. 
Peace. I think we're going to go out with The Awakening by Maniac Agenda from Halo 4.